gentlemen, welcome. It is I, Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and I greet you with the Dreadblade Oathkeeper in my hands, yes. Yes, you must do what I say and be a good boy, or I shall. The Banhammer is now renamed Oathkeeper, let's put it that way. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me here in 2000 and what is it? Is it 2019? Aziz, is that what it is? Uh, I lost count. I think that's right. I am joined here by the Black Maester Aziz. So I'm going to keep holding this up, guy. The way, guys. So uh, I'll have to hold this. I got to have some sort of weapon. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so say hello, the Black Maester Azizel, as he's known around these parts, whose rod, mask, and ring smell of coffee. Coffee. <laughs> yes, I'm carrying my. I've got my smocking gun right here, and I'm ready to go. I'm excited. We've been having fun, kind of reviving. A lot of this talk about the Great Empire, I mean, it's never really not revived. We never never really died, but, you know, it's been even more fun lately. People have been talking about it more. We've had a lot of uh, cool uh, discussions, and yeah, let's do this. I'm, I'm super excited. Excellent. And, of course, I'm also joined by uh, the Hand of the Dragon, Mallory Sanrixian, who I accidentally renamed... Uh, Mallory Radon in the chat earlier. Sorry about that. Hand of the Radon, I called you. Radon. <laughs> Isn't Radon like rat killer or like dangerous or something? It's like a, it's like a poisonous gas. Yeah, as I was saying, you know, I'm I no accept. chemist, but uh, anything that high up on the periodic table is usually poisonous. I accept. Um, that's a good nickname. Yeah. Hi, I'm here. Uh, welcome back to church, everyone. We were off for two weeks and rested up, and I'm back and ready to party. <laughs> Partay. Nice. And as Aziz was saying, uh, the Great Empire of the Dawn talk has been sort of bubbling up lately. Um, and I did a Patreon-only essay uh, last month on the sort of emigration from the Great Empire of the Dawn that may have led to the Dothraki and Sarnor civilizations, Sarnori civilizations, a little bit about Karth. And uh, it was, uh, everybody was talking about it a lot. It was generating a lot of chat because the Great Empire of the Dawn is fun to talk about. And I figured, you know, why keep it, uh, keep it, uh, why keep our light under a bushel? Uh, so the, uh, the Patreon community is generously sharing their uh, patron-only episode with the rest of you guys so we can all revel in the Great Empire of the Dawn. And of course, I couldn't possibly think about talking about the Great Empire of the Dawn without inviting Aziz on. And fortunately, he was able to shuffle his schedule and come on. So here we are, and we're going to be talking about the Great Empire of the Dawn and specifically the Dothraki and the Sarnori civilizations with a little bit of Jogo Snai and Karth thrown in. So, pretty fun stuff. Heck yeah, heck yeah. This is a big episode, and, well, I guess it's a medium-sized episode, but... <laughs> so, it's, it's scripted. I've written it as a script. However, we're going to loosen it up a little bit uh, from the script so that Aziz and I can have a little more discussion about the things that we're doing. So I'll be reading, but periodically kicking it back and forth to sort of more loose stuff. So that's how it's going to go. 
Um, Aziz has read this all. So it's, it's essentially research that I did um, sort of furthering the project that Aziz and I had done about the Great Empire of the Dawn. And actually, Aziz, you made a post on Facebook this week about that video. So can you, why don't you share that with, share that with everybody? Okay, cool. Yeah. I I was just having fun. You know, like you said, this is kind of, this topic has kind of come back around. It's, I'm not entirely sure why, um, just, just judging from our YouTube stats, you know, obviously when a video comes out, that's when it has the most views. And then it just kind of does its thing for the, for a while and, and picks up views here and there. And for for our Great Empire of the Dawn video, it was it was a, a successful video that that surged sometime around June or July, and has continued to surge for six months, and and it just kept on going. I think YouTube is has been recommending it to other uh, people who watch Game of Thrones videos, and also Alt Shift X made a couple of of episodes that. Uh, one which directly relates and another which indirectly relates. And he mentioned the, the this video and our channel in both of them. So that really helped because nice. his channel is obviously really huge. And I think that also just the fact that Fire and Blood came out has people just thinking more about history, uh, Westerosi history and A Song of Ice and Fire history. And so it's kind of a combination of things. You've got just more interest in the fandom in general. You've got YouTube bumping it. You've got... Some other YouTubers making content that's uh, that's related. So just a lot of good, different things happening. You could say the old we could use the old perfect storm analogy. And uh, so basically, what happened is right now it's our it's become our most popular video. At the time of that post, I said it had 12.2 million minutes watched, and now it's up to 12.6, and uh, just keeps humming along. So yeah, it's really really cool. It's, I, I had no idea that that topic would be so popular and that video would be so successful so hey thanks to you it was your idea that's our most most successful video so yeah big uh three cheers for you buddy you really uh you did us a solid <laughs> you did the whole fandom yeah. a solid well you did me a solid right back and launched my uh nascent career such as it is so cool it worked out for everyone and of course the whole point of you know, doing all these theories and stuff i mean it's fun to do it's fun to feel smart when you figure stuff out but it's all about like wanting to share something that's cool like you you dig through song of ice and fire you find something interesting and you're like damn everybody should check this out i mean that's really where Mm -hmm. my whole podcast comes from is i consider myself kind of like an ambassador for symbolism like you know having found all this cool uh metaphor symbolism based internal mythology that george has made in a song of ice and fire i i want everyone else to to be you know appreciate it and see how cool it is like george put all the work into it uh, so the least we could do is appreciate it. So like, well said, you know, I, I, I made a post on uh, Twitter on the first day of the year and I, it was a thank you post. So I'll sort of paraphrase it here, but basically I, I thanked all the Patreons, you know, if you've ever, you know, donated to Patreon, whether you've just donated for a couple months and then, and then, uh, stopped your funding or you're still going, or if you've sent in super chats or if you've just shared the channel or anything like that, what you've done is essentially helped to spread the word of mythology and symbolism. And you've helped other people tune in to the, the deeper layer of what's going on in A Song of Ice and Fire. That's the mission here. That's what we're doing. And if you've ever, you know, helped push this thing forward, then you should feel proud of yourself. You should take ownership of that because that's, that's what it's all about. Um, it, I really do feel passionate about it. That is why I'm so passionate about this. Like, it's fun and it's neat. And I love wearing wigs and hanging out with you guys on the live streams. That's all great. But at, at the core of it is this show-and-tell feeling. Like, 
we've got to show everyone what's going on with the book so that they can have the same fun that we're having. And that's, that's what it's all about. So thanks, everybody. And pat yourself on the back. Anyways, thanks, Aziz and Mallory Starshine and everyone in the chat. Thanks for joining me here at the first live stream of the year. We've got a great year coming. Uh, you know, Stephen Stark did a live stream a couple weeks ago looking at sort of the year and a view for all the myth heads and everything that we've put out. And uh, it was really striking how much stuff uh, we've done, especially in the second half of the year. After Con of Thrones, everybody just sort of had a shot of adrenaline and a kick in the pants. And we, we've just cranked out all this material. And the community has grown. The, the attendees at every live stream is going up and up, not only at our streams, but like the Deep Geeks almost hit 500 the other day. Aziz is hitting huge numbers with his live streams on Tuesday, which, by the way, I'm going to be on Aziz's channel this Tuesday. Oh, yeah. At, we forgot to uh, say that. <laughs> oh, well, don't worry. I wouldn't let it go by the board, but uh, yeah. 6 Eastern, right? Yeah, 6 Eastern Tuesday. Yeah, we'll be talking Sun Chaser, Alyssa Farman, and, and related stuff. You had some That's great right. thoughts on uh, your symbolism talk on that was really fantastic, and there's just so much else to talk about there, too. So, yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good. But that's Tuesday. Yeah, it's, I, it's one of the pearls of fire and blood, Alyssa Farman. There's no doubt. Everybody yeah. figured that out. So yeah, looking forward to that. All right. So, again, got lots of stuff coming this year. Um, it's going to be more Between Two Weirwoods panels, more mythical astronomy. I've been doing the LML and 13 videos. I got two of those so far. Aziz, what do you think of those? My little shorties. Oh, those are cool. That's a good idea. Yeah, you know, I've, I've thought about doing something similar, but I can't. I can't. It's hard to make short things <laughs> just is right <laughs> oh, it's really I did, hard yeah i i did this gagasos episode i finished this gagasos episode last night we haven't recorded it yet but i finished the script for it last night and i, I thought it would be like a 10 or 12 page script which is our no, our scripts are normally like 30 to 35 sometimes 40 and this one's like 22 so it's still <laughs> still about almost twice as long as i planned on it being oh well <laughs> so you guys know how much i love the great empire of the dawn theory I think it's the single most important piece of information in the world of Ice and Fire. That is, all the collected clues about the Great Empire of the Dawn. It's clear that George has been developing the idea of pre-Valerian Dragonlords from Ashai since the very first book, as clues are all over Danny's chapters in A Game of Thrones. And this is basically the first section that Aziz and I did on the Great Empire of the Dawn, as we just went through all of you know the mentions of Ashai in A Game of Thrones. And you can see that basically Ashai is more fleshed out than Valyria uh, in the first book, which is really interesting. And we get mentions of dragons from Ashai. And it's so that's, that's the kind of thing that trips people up about the Great Empire of the Dawn theory. Sometimes it strikes people as an absurdly large idea to hide in the last pages of a world book. Though obviously the world of ice and fire is you know, far beyond other such offerings from other authors in terms of detail and craftsmanship, it still seems like, really, this giant theory about dragon lords before Valyria coming to Westeros tucked in literally the last few pages of the world book. It's a bit much for some people, but this stumbling block is easily removed when you realize that the Great Empire of the Dawn is simply the name for Ashai before the fall of the Long Night and the shadow that now hangs over Ashai. So, as I mentioned, the idea of dragon lords from Ashai is spelled out from the very beginning. Have you ever seen a dragon? She asked as Eerie scrubbed her back and Jiki sluiced sand from her hair. She had heard that the first dragons had come from the east, from the Shadowlands beyond Ashai and the islands of the Jade Sea. Perhaps some were still living there in realms strange and wild. So this is Danny's third Game of Thrones chapter, and she says it right out. 
Dragons might have come from Ashai before Valeria ever existed. So, in other words, the Great Empire of the Dawn information in the world of Ice and Fire is basically the answer to a question that we should have been considering all along, uh, which is, who were these people from Ashai who tamed dragons before the Valerians? If the idea of George putting the answer in the world of Ice and Fire is too much for someone, then I kind of really don't know what to tell them. Because the question is set out right here in the beginning. And even before this Danny scene, which is also the scene where she hears of dragons coming from the moon, by the way, we had Bran's coma dream vision. He lifted his eyes and saw clear across the narrow sea to the free cities and the green Dothraki Sea and beyond, to Vase Dothrak under its mountain, to the fabled lands of the Jade Sea, to Ashai by the shadow, where dragons stirred beneath the sunrise. So again, I say that everyone should have been looking for clues, you know, to build on this idea of dragons from Ashai. And I imagine if Martin had kept his stated earlier plans to actually take Danny to Ashai, which he said that he abandoned at a certain point, we probably would have gotten some of this information about the Great Empire of the Dawn in the main series proper. Which, what do you think about that, Aziz? Um, Actually, yeah, that's a... uh, I was going to jump in if you hadn't uh, kicked it over to me anyway, because that's something I wonder if we'll ever... He'll ever give his thoughts on what those plans might have been at some point when it's all said and done. He might he might either use those ideas elsewhere. Maybe that is what we're seeing in the world book, or uh, my I would guess that we're seeing a, a part of that. I'm guessing that there's more he didn't he didn't he wasn't able to fit in, and maybe more that's still coming because as we do know, he's talked about filling in some of those gaps left by not having Danny go to Ashai potentially with Melisandre flashbacks. So we could still get some of that. And I think to your, uh, also, I want to say that, uh, well, I want to say two things. First of all, your observation that Ashai is mentioned more than Valyria in Game of Thrones and just, you know, for quite a while in the series, maybe, in, maybe overall really is really a, a great observation. And it tells you, tells us all a lot about George's initial intent that he wanted Danny to, have this touchstone to her to her ancient past it's part of this connection because she's living she's living out this prophecy and it's got a it's not just dated back to valyria the valyria the prophecy didn't come from valyria originally the stuff didn't start with valyria so i think that it's um it's both really cool really fun and, and something that george intended all along and he could show it to us like you said he's still got other ways to show it to us um even if uh even if it's not the original plan he had I think uh, a lot of this stuff is um, climactic. Like finding out da- John finding out his real origins is gonna is, is is intentionally saved for near the end or near the you know maybe not the end end but book six maybe. Uh, and the same thing is happening for Danny. She's learning about her origin. She's learning about her father was a was a terrible person, and she's learning. You know, all the way back to farther, farther, farther back to the history of the dragons and all that. So and, this and is, Bran is Bran is also learning about the history of House Stark at the same time. Exactly. So this isn't done. We're not done learning about this. This is what we have today. Is what we figured out so far. But George isn't done filling this filling this out. So this is we have more to come. That's something else to, to say. I think is that this is not nowhere near the end to all this. I think we're going to learn a lot more. Um, 
either through Melisandre, through Fire and Blood 2, through who knows what else. Just more possible. Well, the other one is if Marwyn brings a glass can to Danny. Oh, because yeah. Because yeah. I, I do think, like, some of the the whole point, like we were talking about in The Great Empire of the Dawn and the Ashai episode, is that uh, Quave keeps telling Danny that there's truth waiting for her in Ashai. So, like, the whole point of her going there is obviously to learn information. It's not necessarily, I mean, maybe she'll pick up a magic talisman or something on the way, but it's information and truth that waits for Danny and Ashai. And we figured out that you could do that with Glass Candle pretty easily. Like, if she, if Danny learns how to use the Glass Candle and can see visions and stuff, talk to Quaid a little more, uh, you throw in some Melisandre flashbacks. And I definitely think that we will be getting clues about the Great Empire of the Dawn slash, you know, the ancient Ashai in the books proper in the next two books. I, I expect that will be coming. So. Uh, I see a question real quick about next signs and portals. Um, that will be coming pretty soon. I've got one or two more Weirwood Compendium episodes that will take us to the point where we can hop back over to signs and portals and continue with some of the good Sansa stuff. So that is coming fairly soon. And in the meantime, yeah, if you're if you're looking for Sansa content, of course, you should not be missing Girls Gone Canon's uh, Sansa reread that they are in the middle of, which is very good. I was binging some of that last week, actually, that I got behind on, and it was excellent. So Yeah, yeah. So we've got, uh, as it is, oh, another point. Um, you know, George has been showing us the Great Empire of the Dawn in little snips and bursts, even if they haven't been labeled as such. Of course, everyone remembers the Wake the Dragon dream with the gemstone-eyed kingly ghosts. Ghosts lined the hallway, dressed in the faded raiment of kings. In their hands were swords of pale fire. They had hair of silver and hair of gold and hair of platinum white, and their eyes were opal and amethyst, tourmaline and jade. That's so cool. <laughs> that is, that's a, that's a good one. And again, uh, credit to Duran Durandon, who is uh, one of my Zodiac patrons. He was the one that made that specific find. We were sort of collaborating on the Great Empire of the Dawn stuff, and then he looked at this dream match the gemstones to the gemstone emperors, and that was one of the biggest connections that helped the whole theory yeah. come together. So, endless credit to Duran Durandon. Good job, Duran. Uh, let me let me throw one thing out here, too. I know the, the eye color is certainly super important. Uh, it's more important than the hair color, but the hair color deserves a mention, too, especially with uh, some of the language in Fire and Blood. It's maybe affected our knowledge of, of Valyrian slash proto-Valyrian hair colors, which is that we got the, the notion of Aegon III, his uh, pale white, uh, pa- you know, pale colored, um, silver, pale silverish or pale platinum, whatever you're going to call it, was, was very unusual. And uh, so that's neat. We know these a uh, few other things about their coloring. I imagine maybe we'll get a few more tidbits uh, before the end. Oh yeah, that's that is a good point. So uh, it's most often said the Valerians have silver hair of silver and gold, but sometimes the platinum white is included, and um, so you find that here. And then yeah, like you're saying in Fire and Blood, we saw a couple more platinum white. Um, there's also let's see who else has a whitish hair. Well, Tyrion, um, of course, but that's Tyrion, uh, possibly right. <laughs> that's a whole um, other can of worms, <laughs> right? Edric Edric Dane has um, really pale hair that's more ash than honey. Mm-hmm. So it, it goes to like that pale whitish, um, yeah. So that that is a pretty cool, pretty cool tidbit. I don't think we got anything new on the eye color in Fire and Blood, except for certain characters who have interesting eye color. But this this was cool. And the way I've always interpreted this is basically like 
there's valerian hair on these people, but there's a bunch of different eye colors. So that gives you the idea of like different clans, different tribes or something, different families. You know, maybe they even change their own eyes through magic. We don't, we, I mean, who knows? But the point is like the Valerians seem to be one branch of the Great Empire of the Dawn. And as I'm going to talk about in a minute, Great Empire of the Dawn has to be you know, a multi-ethnic nation state because it's simply so big. But so it's always been obvious that these gemstone eyed kingly ghosts are, they're Danny's ancestors in some form. But the question is, were they always intended to be pre-Valerian dragon lords from a shy? It is possible that George was originally imagining Valerians with other eye colors and then later changed these kingly ghosts to be the gemstone emperors. However, I think that between the flaming swords that these kingly ghosts hold, uh, which the Valerians are never recorded as possessing, and the fact that only one of them has purple eyes, I'd lean towards Martin always having imagined these people as the dragon lords from Ashai that he refers to elsewhere in A Game of Thrones. Um, I mean, why else drop all these clues in the very same book about people from Ashai taming dragons before the Valerians did? Um, to be, you know, So I guess my point is, like, he already was thinking about dragon lords coming from, some, from Ashai before Valeria, at this point, so there's really no reason to think that he wasn't project, you know, already thinking about these kingly ghosts as being from the Great Empire of the Dawn. Um, now, this glorious. Uh, the other thing that I think, the other place that I think George is showing us the Great Empire of the Dawn is in the glorious and false vision of the Undying of Karth that Danny sees in A Clash of Kings. Um, this vision, which the Undying are basically projecting into Danny's mind seems to me to represent the Undying trying to pose as the ancient people of Ashai, as opposed to Valerians. Beyond the doors was a great hall and a splendor of wizards. Some wore sumptuous robes of ermine, ruby velvet, and cloth of gold. Others fancied elaborate armor studied with gemstones or tall pointed hats speckled with stars. There were women among them, dressed in gowns of surpassing loveliness. Shafts of sunlight slanted through windows of stained glass, and the air was alive with the most beautiful music she had ever heard. A kingly man in rich robes rose when he saw her and smiled. Daenerys of House Targaryen, be welcome. Come and share the food of forever. We are the undying of Karth. Long have we awaited you, said a woman beside him, clad in rose and silver. The breast she had left bare in the Carthine fashion was as perfect as a breast could be. We knew you were here to come to us, the wizard king said. A thousand years ago we knew, and have been waiting all this time. We sent the comet to show you the way. We have knowledge to share with you, said a warrior in shining emerald armor, and magic weapons to arm you with. You have passed every trial. Now come and sit with us, and all your questions shall be answered. Well, he's really having fun with some of the old, like, wizardy tropes there, isn't he? The speckled hat with stars. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> we have we have been watching you for a thousand years. Like how many different stories have that line? <laughs> but usually they're being honest. <laughs> In this case, they don't turn into horrors. <laughs> yeah, so cool. one thing one thing that I, I um, like to remind myself when I'm reading scenes like this is, um, you know. Imagine the state of mind that Danny is in. Like, there's a lot of confusion. She's walking through a building, making endless turns, going up and up and down and down when there are, uh, yeah, she's going up, uh, you know, into a tower that doesn't really exist. She's seeing things from, she's hearing like rats in the walls and seeing weird visions. <laughs> like, all of her senses 
are being thrown into chaos and confusion. And it's most likely that 99% of you have never been this confused, um, unless you've really taken a lot of acid one time. I mean, that's, that's really like the only way to get to the point where like you're, you're so disoriented. But just think about how a dream feels. Like when you're in a dream, unless you've really like fully awakened to lucidity, when you're in the dream, it seems real. No matter how ridiculous it is, your emotions and the part of your brain that's awake reacts and responds to the dream as if it was real. So when Danny sees this fantastic vision and they're wearing pointy wizard hats, like it sounds a little over the top, but just try to imagine yourself in the grips of like the shade of the evening trip and you're completely disoriented and there's this vision of surpassing loveliness. The air is alive with music. I mean, it's like... Just try to imagine the most glorious thing you've ever seen, like a picture of heaven. That's what Danny is seeing right here. And it is meant to resonate with Danny, who's basically lost her home and is searching for her identity and any connections to her lineage and history. And these star-speckled and gemstone-studded fine folk, they look nothing like Valerians. And since this entire thing is an illusion, one which the Undying basically are projecting into their head, one imagines that the Undying could have portrayed themselves in any manner they wanted to. If they wanted to look like Valerians, they could have. This is all fake. It's an illusion. But instead, they went for something a little different. Uh, and to me, the only logical answer is that they were showing Danny their best idealized memory of the Great Empire of the Dawn. You know, they know the speech of Dragonkind. They see Danny as a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. They send her the comet. I mean, this has Azor High and Dragonlords written all over it. But again, they aren't posing as Valerians. And given the use of the words kingly and gemstones, it's even perhaps meant to make you think of the kingly ghost with gemstone eyes who want Danny to wake the dragon. And here the air is alive with music. And the last line of A Game of Thrones after Danny wakes the dragons is. And for the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. So a lot of synergistic language there. That's one I just caught uh, a few days ago, Aziz. What do you think about that? That's pretty cool. I've always that line's always stuck out to me, um, but for different reasons. Just because it's uh, it's sort of a narrator line. It's not really a, pers- a POV line. You know what I mean? It's kind of like he. It's kind of like that. It's vaguely like that Victorian. Uh, chapter where the end of the chapter is completely out of his point of view but it's it's a it's more distinct because that's a whole a whole paragraph or two this is just the last line of the book and you know you could imagine danny is thinking that she knows dragons have been around it's not really an, it's really more of a narrator line though but uh yeah it's that's pretty neat you're right and that's something that i think that the fandom maybe has picked up on more recently uh it's always been a topic but i think it's it's maybe one that's been given less attention than perhaps it deserves which is that the title of the story is A Song of Ice and Fire, and George is playing on music themes a lot with that. So whenever he uses a line like, alive with music, we should pay attention because that's already a thematic choice he's made for the entire title of the series. So, yeah, I think that's pretty important for sure. Definitely. And, of course, Aziz and I are both musicians, so we're especially keyed into that stuff. But, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that's been written about the use of song there's a song, you know, the, the children are those who sing the song of earth, and there's the, uh, the songs that the drowned men sing, and the song of the sea, Melisandre sings to R'hllor, there's the, uh, the moon singers, the, the cult of starry wisdom sings to the stars from atop their scrying towers, and of course, battle is like a song, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of good analysis to be done. In fact, Jesus, that might sound like a good, 
uh, con panel. <laughs> what do you think about that? That would be a good con panel. Yeah. Very good music. Just the, uh, I know, um, Amin long ago wrote a essay on music and a song of ice and fire. And it was really good. There's a lot of, a lot of themes and ways it comes up as a historical tool, as a, you know, because it's a way for memories to be preserved, like, like, uh, Homer, Homeric stuff. You know, that's a, a perfect example of a real world transition there. And, uh, yeah, and George just writes lyrics for a lot of songs. Like you got the Dornishman's Wife and the and the Bear and the Maiden Fair and lots of. I mean, he even wrote some lyrics for the for different singers to do the Dance of the Dragons and other songs at the Red Wedding and or a Purple Wedding rather. So, yeah, George has put a lot of effort into getting music into there. Um, and of course, the TV show has done a great job of its own in its own right of adding music. Speaking of other works by George R. R. Martin, since we're talking about The House of the Undying, I want to give a shout-out to George's story, The Stone City. If you haven't read The Stone City, it's in Dream Songs 1, I believe, and it is a proto-House of the Undying. The, story, the, 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 the central location within this stone city is... It's, you got a, a staircase that just keeps going, and he's told to stay near the center of the staircase, and he sees all these visions of other places. It's... You'll get the undying vibes if you read that story, and it's only about a, uh, it's about an hour and a half on audio. So yeah, highly recommended. Fun stuff. Anyway, nice. Yeah, I always get I always get something when I read uh, read one of those. So Karth itself really seems like Martin's first attempt at showing us the legacy of the ancient Ashai and the great empire of the dawn. Uh, Karth seems to be the oldest city in the world, at least they claim to be. And though, and I love how they do that on the TV show, like the very snooty Karth. <laughs> the oldest and greatest city in the world. It's like you can. It's like the South Park where they're sniffing their own farts in the wine glasses. It's very <laughs> and correcting very like the, the spelling or pronunciation or whatever he does. Yeah, cough, He's like, yes. Car. Oh, that was hilarious. I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, it, it, it was well done. Uh, so they're built. Carth is built right on the edge of the former territory of the Great Empire of the Dawn, and it would have commanded enormous strategic importance sitting astride the Jade Gates then as now. They've even got a Tourmaline Brotherhood, which I always like to joke, is a sect of devotees to the wisdom of the Tourmaline Empire of the Great Empire. Tourmaline Emperor of the Great Empire. And it's hard to say for sure, but the overall picture I'm seeing is that Martin is leaving Great Empire of the Dawn breadcrumbs all <laughs> around Karth. Uh, the idea, that, is there something funny in the chat here? No, you said you had a little trouble saying that, and then you said hard to say for sure because you were. Oh. It was hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the kind of thing only you would pick up on. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in in essence, uh, we, these are Great Empire of the Dawn breadcrumbs that I'm seeing, and the idea that they all want Danny's dragons in Karth lines up with the idea of Karth seeing themselves as the heirs to the ancient knowledge and magic of the Great Empire, and more on this to come. In a moment. Uh, so like I said, there are plenty of Great Empire of the Dawn breadcrumbs in the series proper. So really, the theory is not far-fetched or tinfoily in the slightest. No, it's the conveyor belt of plausibility, as I like to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, in the world of Ice and Fire, in the section about Valyria, Martin basically begs us to think about this question. In Ashai, the tales are many and confused, but certain texts, all impossibly ancient, claim that dragons first came from the shadow, a place where all of our learning fails us. These Ashai histories say that a people so ancient they had no name first tamed the dragons in the shadow and brought them to Valyria, teaching the Valyrians their arts before departing from the annals. Yet if men in the shadow had tamed dragons first, why did they not conquer as the Valyrians did? 
I remember in our episode because I was going through, I was listening to parts of it and re- rereading parts of it. We uh, we use that quote, and then your next line is, "Maybe they did, maybe <laughs> they did." <laughs> so that feels right here again. It's so loaded. It's just like, well, why didn't they conquer? And oh, by the way, <laughs> there's. I'm just so, asking the question. <laughs> so Martin is is giving us this question straight out. If people had tamed dragons in a shy. Which, oh, by the way, is the largest city ever built in 10,000 years by several orders of magnitude. Wouldn't they have conquered a huge empire like Valyria? The obvious answer is yes. And then in the same book, George tells us about this gargantuan advanced civilization of legend, which is like his Atlantis or Mew. And it very much fits the bill. It's the great empire of the dawn, and it existed right on a shy's doorstep. And oh, by the way... They built these things called the Five Forts out of fused black stone, which can only be made with dragon fire and sorcery, as far as we know. So it's all coming together there. And I also love this very logical angle that considers the size of a shy. Such a metropolis can only have been built by a rich and powerful civilization. And the huge land walls which surround a shy, which are now totally useless, speak to a time when the Shadowlands Peninsula and a shy were heavily populated. And they might have had to contend with rival nations and armies that would necessitate the building of huge land walls. The Great Empire of the Dawn and the missing advanced civilization that built Ashai are a perfect fit. And they, they combine to tell a very sensible tale. The people who tamed dragons in Ashai before the Valerians did indeed conquer a huge empire. And their pursuit of power and magic eventually led to a great downfall, just like Valeria. It's from this ancient past that Lightbringer and Azor High come from, and this conclusion is harmonious with the gemstone emperor kingly ghosts holding swords of pale fire and of dragon lords existing in the Great Empire of the Dawn. So, the fall of the Great Empire flows seamlessly into the legend of Azor High ending the Long Night with the last emperor of the Great Empire, the Bloodstone Emperor pictured here, being blamed for causing the Long Night. It's pretty clear to me that the fall of this great empire and of the long night must surely be the thing which left a shy in the surrounding area poisoned, shadowed, and magically toxic. Especially when we consider that the Bloodstone Emperor, pictured here, was really into cuddling <laughs> with his black meteorite and his very name, Bloodstone, is interchangeable with Bleeding Star, a term used to describe a meteor or comet. Yes, I, I do. I picture him like snuggling. Oh, Blackstone, you complete mm. me. I also picture you doing that, to be fair. No I'm sorry. <laughs> and now, and now I'm picturing that, and so is everyone else. Well, I do have a meteorite. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's, it's by far the heaviest of all my rocks. Uh, if I hold it up, you can see it's got... Oh, it's, cool. This one's got a bunch of um, lithium in it, which is what's making the shiny part. But yeah, this is a meteor. And it's heavy. It weighs like at least a pound. And as you can see, it's a small ass little rock, but yeah, it came yeah. from space. <laughs> I do not, however, pray to it or cuddle with it. Um, so I hate to disappoint, it. hate mm. to disappoint, but um, okay, maybe a little bit. So thus we can see the basic <laughs> timeline being suggested here. The dragon lords of ancient Ashai did indeed build an empire, but no one remembers it very well because it was wiped out during the long night. And no one remembers anything very well from before the long night. However, some survivors of the Great Empire seem to have taken some of their magical knowledge with them when they fled or migrated to Valyria, including the knowledge of taming dragons, obviously. And thus we have these impossibly ancient stories in Ashai, which speaks of a people 
who first tamed dragons by the shadow and then taught these arts to the first Valerians. Or more likely, they became the first Valerians, judging from the silver-gold hair that all the gemstone emperors had in Danny's dream. That dominant Valerian look certainly seems a direct legacy of the Great Empire. So today, we're going to take a new angle on providing evidence for the Great Empire as not only the builders of Ashai and not only the ancestors of Valeria, but as the people who essentially shaped the modern world of Planetos, or Girth, or whatever you want to call it. Girth. They are the... <laughs> I kind of like that one. I mean, I always say Planetos, but Girth oh, is, is kind of cool. Because George does have Girth. <laughs> no! <laughs> you killed her with that. Oh, I mean, Girth. He does, George does have Girth, though, so I mean, it works. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I, Jesus Christ, diseased. <laughs> I'm not even touching that. Oh, hey, oh. <laughs> I, I have to get on my 10 foot pole. Oh, oh my God. Okay. Oh. It's, it, things go into the gutter so quickly around here. Um, it's a cesspool. <laughs> so, obviously, um, when we talk about the Great Empire of the Dawn being the starting point for all noble history, um, and their fingerprints, you know, being found in every corner of the modern world. This obviously starts with Valeria. Not only did the Great Empire pass along the art of taming dragons, we can also observe that Valeria's fabled art of making castles, fortresses, roads, and bridges out of unbreakable fused black stone with dragon fire and sorcery was something they inherited from the ancestors of the Great Empire. As many have observed, the theoretical formula for making Valerian steel, dragon fire, and blood magic seems to constitute the Valerian's attempt to basically recreate the forging of Lightbringer. And though they may not be able to create flaming swords, they did create unbreakable magic swords, ones which can probably kill the others and which would look good if they were to be set on fire one day. I think that will happen. Um, It's well possible that the Great Empire knew how to make such swords. If Dawn is not the original ice then it's definitely from the Great Empire of the Dawn. And I can also think of several scenarios where it could be both. Though that's a story for another day. Um, we also know that Quave, a shadowbinder from Ashai, has mastered use of the glass candle, which is thought of as a Valerian invention, but may well be a legacy from the Great Empire of the Dawn in retrospect. It's possible, and even probable in my opinion, that Valerian magic as a whole can essentially be seen as a fragment of the magic of the Great Empire. And disease that's essentially the conclusion that we came to collectively when we looked at it all, is it not? Yes, absolutely. That was, it made a lot of sense. It, 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 there was a cut, two things I would back up just a little bit. It, it makes sense that, like you said, that there would be very little record of the Great Empire or of whatever came before the Long Night. And that is true. We know there was a Long Night. That's not disputed. But what the world was like before that, that's very much in debate. And this is uh, a lot of where that fertile ground lies. So... Yeah, I think that um, I think that's extremely apparent based on what what we have, because, well, we're not really given much else besides these sort of mythical figures like the Age of Heroes figures who don't really interact with the Long Night. They're just they're kind of all pre Long Night and they're not really we don't really know about the civilizations and societies they lived in. We just know about them as figures and their amazing possibly mythologized, mythologized, mythical uh, deeds and such. So, yeah. So I am seeing good comments, and I'm seeing a, uh, a comment from Huntress of the Wolfswood 
about genetic looks and skin tone and stuff. And I've actually got something later in the episode for that, but I'll go ahead and address it now. So Huntress of the Wolfswood says, In another forum, someone asked, Wasn't it problematic to have silver-haired Nordic types be the emperors of a multi-ethnic empire? And why didn't the gemstone emperors look more like the Yeetish? So first of all, I will point out that the gemstone emperors that Danny sees, the skin tone is not mentioned. Um, only the hair and the eyes. And I have always assumed that their skin tone must be some sort of a medium brown color because most of the people in Eastern Essos do have darker skin. Um, and the the Ashai that Danny sees in Vase Dothrak are they're they're called like dark. What is it, Aziz? What's the description of them? I believe they're dark. Yeah, they have the they have masks, so she can't see their faces, but and they have lots of tattoos. But I'm pretty sure their skin is darkish. Which is interesting because the Carthine are pale skin, so that's kind of like a opposite, almost polar opposite there. Um, but uh, there's okay. So real quick, uh, there's when we get to Sarnor, we're going to talk about three different peoples that went into the forging of the nation of Sarnor. One of those people are the Zokora, who are tall with brown skin, but they have pale or white hair, um, and I think that that is a big clue about what the Great Empire of the Dawn people might have looked like. Isn't there um, an, an, an Asian-looking guy in uh, World of Ice and Fire as as the one of the emperors? Isn't that a if I remember not one of the emperors, but one of the rulers of Et? I'll go grab my book. Just to, so you, you are know thinking which one of it is? yes, you're thinking of the Lengi picture, which has a god, a Lengi. tall god empress next to a short Yetish husband, and exactly. the Yetish guy definitely looks Asian. So there's no doubt that Et okay. is supposed to be Asian. Um, so what I'm seeing about the Great Empire of the Dawn, essentially, is that, first of all, it was a multi-ethnic empire. So you would have had different peoples existing inside of it. Um, we don't know if those gemstone emperors, a lot of people think those are probably, they represent dynasties or great houses as opposed to just eight rulers. Um, we don't know, you know, each dynasty may have looked different. And like I said, I suspect that the Valerian hair color might have originally been stuck on top of people that didn't have white skin. And I think the Zokora are a clue about that as well. But we're going to get into that in a little more detail later on. So thanks for bringing that up, Huntress. That is a very good uh, question. And potentially if, if we get another vision um, you know, from Mel or Danny or something, maybe we'll get some more information. But it's tough. We're talking about 10,000 years ago, so... We're just, you know, we're guesstimating and, and trying to back backfill from the clues we have today. So, all right. Um, we just discussed Karth, and I think the evidence is pretty good that there is some kind of cultural link between the Great Empire of the Dawn and Karth. It's also notable that, as Aziz just said, the Karthian are described as tall and milk pale. So it's possible that these fair looks came from the same branch of Great Empire lineage that the Valerians did, who also are very pale skinned. Um, the cultural links, however, are more clear between Karth and the Great Empire of the Dawn. And I think the point is that the Karthine, the Karthine may have inherited uh, the magical knowledge and lore of the Great Empire more than anything else. So, as I was just saying, it should be noted that any empire as massive as the Great Empire would basically have to be a multi-ethnic conglomerate state. And we see that in the wake of their collapse, several different nation-states popped up within their official borders with varying ethnicity, from the people of Hercoon to Yt to Nefer, and even the nomadic Jogos Nai and the island nation of Lang. 
These are definitely different looking people with different ethnicities who were all a part of the great empire. So today we're going to go beyond those nations and peoples, beyond Karth and Valeria, beyond the few dark sorcerers left huddling in the greasy black stone buildings of Ashai. We aren't even going to talk about the Danes of Starfall, who are definitely, positively, 100% canon descended from the great empire and who even look like Valerians from time to time. We also aren't going to discuss the single biggest piece of smocking gun evidence in the entire series, the fused black stone fortress that sits beneath the high tower. No, what we're going to talk about today is the clear fact, not a clear fact, just a, a theory, that <laughs> the Sarnori and Dothraki, two horse-loving people who inhabited the same grasslands at different times, are also descended from the great empire of the dawn. So that's the first section, which took a lot longer than I thought. That's okay. Um, Harrison Grand Williams says, also, if George is taking inspiration from the peoples of the Mongolian steppe, you do see a variety of genetic features combining in interesting ways. That's true. Um, Aziz, I think you've read that uh, Genghis Khan and the Shaping of the Modern World book that I've read too, right? Uh, no. I've read a lot of other stuff on Genghis Khan, though. So Okay, and we both listened to the... the, the Dan Carlin uh, Khan series probably multiple times that I know. Oh too. yes, yes, multiple times. Yes. And so what you had, what you had there was um, the the horse peoples, the what you'd call the Mongols of the steppe. They were a bunch of different tribes, and they were darker looks, and they eventually sort of interacted with the uh, the Chinese ruling dynasties, who would have had the more classic, uh, paler Chinese look. And, you know, from we get all sorts of inter, intermixing and offshoot empires and things like that. So I think there's a, definitely a similar dynamic going on here. That's a good point, Harrison. And Thank that's, you. Uh, and, yeah, that's a great point, too, because, like you say, the whole point of an empire, one of the things that makes an empire versus a kingdom is a kingdom is generally... Uh, I mean, the, the terms are kind of loose, so let's, let me say that first. But, but generally speaking, a kingdom is one set of people. <clears throat> Uh, one kind of region defined by its people and its terrain, whereas an empire is a whole bunch of different cultures and regions and religions. And so it's more complicated because you have, you have to manage all these people that maybe have had issues with each other in the past. And so you can't, so it's a good way to keep them from fighting, but it's also, you know, uh, potentially a thing that can, can be a problem in the future. So by having an empire, by combining peoples together, you get more, commerce and just traffic between ethnicities that would have previously been a little bit more separated. So that's one of the positive things of a centralized state like that is that you get more more of this mixing. And so, of course, that's going to create not just trading and working together. There's going to be marriages. And like you said, with the Chinese dynasties, they eventually were Chinese Mongolian dynasties because all this Mongolian blood got in there. The Mongolians were ruling it and they were marrying, taking Chinese princesses as, as wives and all that. So yeah, same kind of thing is going to happen here, but on, but all, but all over the scale, not just at the Royal family level. You're going to have people from Sarnor marrying people from Ashai, just like you got Northerners marrying Dornish every once in a while. It's not that different a concept. Exactly. And that, that sort of thinking is exactly the, the approach that I'm taken and that we're taken to this whole uh, sort of emigration out of the great empire of the dawn. When, when right. a great, you know, when a great empire collapses, you're going to get just all kinds of little things popping up. And so that actually brings me to the beginning of this next section, which is about the Dothraki. Um, and I need to honor some Patreons because I've got some new ones and I got some new nicknames. 
This next section is brought to you by several priests and priestesses of the priesthood of starry wisdom, including Elana Prestan of Bravos, keeper of the notorious Glorious Cloister, Lady Kay of House Archer, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrelsbane, the Mighty Direweenie, and Rialto the Marcellus, the Starsmith, he who forges and was forged. I have to I have to break the news to um, to John Walsh that his backwards guitar is perhaps more popular than his forwards guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, when you read the story of the Great Empire of the Dawn in the World of Ice and Fire, you see that right after Azor High and Lightbringer defeated the forces of darkness and returned love and light to the world or some such, the diaspora megabomb that is the Great Empire's dissolution is spelled out. Yet the Great Empire of the Dawn was not reborn, for the restored world was a broken place where every tribe of men went its own way, fearful of all the others, and war and lust and murder endured, even to our present day, or so the men and women of the further east believe. That's basically a reset of all that stuff we just talked about, right? All this, all everybody's working together, everybody's men are mingling, and working, and all of a sudden, nope, undoes all that. Right, and the whole point is that they, they all went their own way. And so this is an empire larger than any seen since, one which probably built a shy, a city larger than any seen since, and it was broken apart in terror and madness during the long night. And when the long night ended, every tribe of man went their separate way. That wording is another clue that the great empire was a multi-ethnic nation state, one which contained many tribes of man. This spreading out in all directions from the great empire probably began as soon as the horrific reign of the Bloodstone Emperor, pictured here, also began. When the daughter of the Opal Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced dark arts, torture, and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, feasted on human flesh, and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. In the annals of the further east, it was the Blood Betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the age of darkness called the Long Night. Uh, yes. Yes, it did. And that sounds like pretty bad stuff. Um, I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing that might make you want to, you know, migrate a bit, or even a lot. I mean, I have to say, as much as I like moon meteors, uh, if the President of the United States ever started, quote-unquote, worshipping a black meteorite... I'd have a few concerns, and if he were to start practicing cannibalism and necromancy, I'd say that it is indeed finally time to move to Canada, which is what we in the United States say when we are really concerned with whatever the current president is doing. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, whether, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, uh, you know, think of the worst scandal of the worst, you know, think of the worst president in your mind. Think of the worst thing they did. Uh, and then now imagine the president is like worshiping black stones. <laughs> like, oh, I'm out, dude. I am fucking okay, out. That's, okay, that's worse. Yeah, that is worse. <laughs> so now it would have been basically the same for the millions of people living under the yoke of the great empire. People might start saying things like, you know, I've heard the weather in the summer sea is lovely this time of year. Or even Sothorios can't be that bad, can it? <laughs> in fact, the Roinar fleeing the Valerians isn't a bad parallel. If the wrath of the Bloodstone Emperor, a presumed dragon lord pictured here, uh, turned on your particular tribe of man, as the wrath of evil tyrants always does, you'd basically do anything and go anywhere, even Sothorios, to get away. 
Turns out people didn't have to sail to Sothorios to get away, though, although maybe some did. Those brindled men have to come from somewhere. But no, as it turns out, George has actually told us exactly where a great many of the enslaved peoples of the Great Empire fled to. They fled across the Bones Mountains. East, beyond Vase Dothrak and the Mother of Mountains, the grasslands give way to rolling plains and woods, and the earth beneath the traveler's feet turns hard and stony and begins to climb upward, ever upward. The hills grow wilder and steeper, and soon enough the mountains appear in the far distance, their great peaks seeming to float against the eastern sky, blue-gray giants so huge and jagged and menacing that even Lomas Longstrider, that dauntless wanderer, if his tales be true, lost heart at the sight of them, believing that he had at last reached the ends of the earth. The ancestors of the Dothraki and the other horse peoples of the grasslands knew better, for some remembered crossing those mountains from the lands that lay beyond. Did they come west in hopes of fairer fields and plenty, or in search of conquest, or were they fleeing before some savage foe? Their tales do not agree, so we may never know, but of their travails we may be certain, for they left their bones behind to mark their passing. The bones of men, the bones of horses, the bones of giants and camels and oxen, of every sort of beast and bird and monster, all can be found amongst these savage peaks. From them the mountains take their name, the Bones. Tallest of all the mountain ranges in the known world, from the sunset sea to Ashai by the shadow, the Bones extend from the shivering sea to the Jade Sea, a wall of twisted rock and sharp stone stretching more than 500 leagues from north to south and 100 leagues from east to west. And there it is. And there it is. Uh, the famous Essos map from Michael Clarfeld. Of course, Beautiful. you can get a free copy of this map at uh, his website, clairedocs.de. Um, and there you can see the bones. It's, uh, it, I mean, it cuts the entire thing right in half, north to south, tallest mountains in the world. you got to like how the peaks are floating in the sky like blue-gray giant moons. I particularly enjoyed that. But, uh, yeah, there it is, the Bones Mountains. Something I, uh, something I realized last night is a really small thing. You know, the Dithraki, to their, to their west is the Great Salt Sea, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're the Jogos Nye, to your, what, what, is, what is west of them? The Great Shrinking Sea. <laughs> Everyone's yeah, and- got some big Great Sea to their west, apparently. And somebody's well, and, and Joe Magician made the point, and other people have made this point. You can see that um, the east is basically drying out. Um, yeah. there's, there's a dry deep, the shrinking sea. Um, it's, you can just tell that the, the thing is drying out. And I think overall, George is mimicking the climate patterns of Earth, where um, you know, there's, there's a rising sea level, which actually does lead to drying out in certain places. And I think we can see that with the Arm of Dorne. And a couple other places. Uh, so, yeah, it's. I don't know if the drying out is just a climate shift or if it's a result of the disaster, but you can definitely. I mean, it looks ruined. I mean, even outside of a shy, just the eastern Essos is pretty rough. It's just. You can see that's like a. It's a lighter. It's a paler shade of green. Uh, and then there's just a lot of. Like, of course, Ashai is just whatever is going on there in the shadow. But, yeah, there's all those, like, those giant just dirt holes there, two of them. <laughs> you got the, the shrinking sea, or actually three of them, I guess, if you count the, the, that other one far to the east, uh, whatever that one's called. And, uh, yeah, you're totally right. You've got, and, and even on the Dithraki Sea, there's that, some of that effect as well, where there used to be the Silver Sea. Um, so I guess the drying has uh, been going on for a while. Yeah, the Silver Sea and then also the Red Waste itself. Um, it used to be full of cities inhabited by the Quaithai, 
um, back when the red waste just presumably wasn't quite so nasty, so wasty. Yeah, and that that uh, fits with what we know about uh, the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, Tigris and Euphrates. That area used to be incredibly fertile. It's it's not it's not infertile now, but it's not as fertile as it was due to deforestation and a lot of other problems. So we've got this uh, we've got this story about the Bones Mountains. They are a natural land barrier, almost comically so. <laughs> they they literally cut the whole continent in, in half. But there are so many bones littered in the passes that these mountains, that the entire range, or in these mountains, that the entire range is named after them. This sounds like a mass migration from east to west, and a desperate one at that. They brought all their animals with them, and probably all their elderly and sick and young, everybody. And no matter how many died, turning back would not have been an option. And so their animals and people and children perished along the way. And seem to have simply been either left behind or maybe they were buried in quickly fashioned stone cairns. You think about Cat and Tyrion in the Mountains of the Moon. And they want to bury their buddy, but they're like, well, we really can't. You know, the shadow cats are going to get him anyway, so, you know, fuck it. Sorry. Uh, and you, you imagine a whole people migrating through the mountains, and there would have been a lot of that. Um, so this quote from The World of Ice and Fire even poses the question, were these people perhaps fleeing some savage foe? Well, yes, we know that during the reign of the Bloodstone Emperor, people going east would have had to cross the bones, and we know that in the wake of his reign, the tribes of men went their own ways and scattered. Among all the history that were given for the east, the dissolution of the great empire during the long night is the obvious mechanism to trigger the kind of desperate mass migration that the skeletal evidence is pointing to. And this reminds me very much of the wildling migration towards the wall, which John observes in A Clash of Kings. Their encampment had no plan to it. He saw no ditches, no sharpened stakes, no neat rows of horse lines. Everywhere, crude earthen shelters and hide tents sprouted haphazardly, like a pox on the face of the earth. He spied untidy mounds of hay, smelled goats and sheep, horses and pigs, dogs in great profusion. Tendrils of dark smoke rose from a thousand cook fires. This is no army, no more than it is a town. This is a whole people come together. So the wildlings were fleeing from the others here, an enemy so terrifying that they felt their only choice was to throw themselves against a 700-foot ice wall in a basically hopeless attack. And then later when John is among the free folk, he sees women and children as well as their livestock animals. So the wildlings fled with every man, woman, child, horse, pig, goat, and dog. Everything they valued carried on their backs. Everything else left behind, forgotten, and abandoned. That kind of wholesale migration, the kind where you don't even stop for the sick or the dying, makes sense when you are fleeing an enemy as terrifying as the others or the Bloodstone Emperor. Yeah, it's pure, pure desperation. I think this is a fantastic comparison, not only because it contains all the same elements of what makes refugees being a refugee so horrible, and especially in a fantasy refugee where the the potential can be even worse in a lot of senses because of the, the... elements available to the fantasy elements can be so terrible um but then uh, they're basically fleeing in advance of the new long night too which is what the these easterners were doing the meaning the wildlings are it's not the long night yet but it's it's like the calm the calm the the panic before the bigger panic um the darkness so yeah it works really well as comparison that's great yeah i don't i don't imagine the bloodstone emperor necessarily um, usurped power 
and caused the long night in the same moment. Like he may have taken over and began his reign of dark sorcery and all that. And then eventually that leads to him getting the knowledge and power to crash the comet into the moon or whatever the hell happened. Yeah. So like like Night King. Night King didn't do his his thirteenth Lord Commander business wasn't all he didn't marry the the woman he saw atop the wall and and ensorcel his brothers with strange spells all in one day either, right? That's the same thing. This is a like a saga of of a ruler. Yeah. Ensorcel, that's just a good word. <laughs> So there you go. And then basically we're just providing different possibilities. We know that they fled fled the the great empire. It, you know, they could have been doing it before the long, you know, before it actually the long night fell or right afterwards. It's fun to speculate, but the point is we know that they fled and we know they went west to east. Consider this line again from the passage that we just read. Uh, it said the bones of horses, the bones of giants and camels and oxen of every sort of beast and bird and monster. That sounds like the animals themselves are fleeing a natural cataclysm, almost like a forest fire that drives all the animals out of the wood, only on a huge scale. And we know of just such a cataclysm, of course. Wink, wink, snap, snap, grin, grin, no to me, no to me, say no more. (laughs) So there are three well-established passes through the mountains, and they're all three controlled by the last remnants of the lost kingdom of Hercoon, which was inside the Great Empire and which gave us Hercoon the Hero, one of the five given names for Azor High. In other words, these passes have probably been in use since the time of the Long Night and the Great Empire. And here is the quote from the World of Ice and Fire about these passes. A thousand roads lead into the bones, wise men say, from Karth to Kohor, but only three lead out. As impassable as the bones appear from afar, there are indeed hundreds of footpaths, goat tracks, game trails, stream beds, and slopes by which travelers, traders, and adventurers may find their way into the heart of the mountains. In certain places, ancient carved steps and hidden tunnels and passages exist for those who know how to find them. Yet many of these paths are treacherous, and others are dead ends or traps for the unwary. Small parties, well-armed and well-provisioned, may wake their way through the bones by myriad ways when led by a guide who knows the dangers. Armies, trading caravans, and men alone, however, are well advised to stay to the main routes, the three great mountain passes that bridge the worlds of east and west, the Steel Road, the Stone Road, and the Sand Road. The Steel Road, so named for all the battles it has seen, and the Stone Road, both originate in Vase Dothrak, the former running almost due east beneath the highest peaks, the latter curving southeast to join the old Silk Road at the ruins of Yinshar, called Vase Genie by the Horse Lords, before beginning its climb. Far south of these, the Sand Road passes through the southern bones, sometimes called the Dry Bones, for water is scarce there, and surrounding deserts, connecting the great port city of Karth with the market city Tiki, the gateway to the east. Hmm. So I guess we have that's really cool. We have this this long story about the roads and, and how they work. And it kind of it's kind of reminiscent of some of the stuff in Westeros. It kind of reminds me of uh, the, the passageways through the Red Mountains of Dorne, where there's all sorts of goat tracks that the Dornish raiders use to get around invaders and to trap invaders and to trick them. And it's 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 told you don't want to go. You don't want to go in there without a guide. And it's perilous. And you can you can run out of water just as easily as you can get ambushed. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is good stuff. And what's, what's really interesting is that two of these roads through the mountains lead to Vase Dothrak and the Dothraki grasslands more generally, and the other one leads right to Karth. So this is more evidence of an ancient Great Empire of the Dawn Karth connection, and thus we can see that Karth 
would have been a logical place for people fleeing the downfall of the great empire to go. It's actually the closest road if you were from Ashai, um, the lands which are now Yi-T, or basically anywhere in the south of the empire. So much of the traffic fleeing the great empire would have gone through Karth, either by land or sea, because some of them might have sailed through the Jade Straits, uh, simply because of geography. And once again, I will put up Klarfeld's map. One second, so we can just get a little visual aid here. So you can see that Karth um, is sitting so right here, and this the Serpent Road is just north of Karth. If you can look at my mouse, it's right there. Um, so if you're fleeing Yi-T, you could have perhaps gone right along the coast to get to Karth. You could have sailed through the Straits, or you could have taken this Serpent Road, and, and you would have passed by Karth in any of those any of those paths. So there's no question that Karth would have gotten some traffic from the Great Empire of the Dawn. And given that that road exists, they probably traded, if they existed um, at that time, then they would have had commerce and commune with them. So there you go. Yeah, it's really, the idea that they that two of those roads lead to Vase Dothrak is really interesting because obviously that's not some great ancient trading center, you know? So it's either the road may have originally led to something that was like to into the Sarnori cities or one of these other ruined cities nearby. And it's just been kind of taken over by the Dothraki. But um, the point is that route through the mountains, that's the really ancient thing that was discovered almost certainly by super ancient peoples as a way to, you know, get back and forth between the mountains. So people have been aware of that for, for a long time. And uh yeah, it's probably pretty cool. It would be really neat to just focus entirely on some of these migrations. If we were getting really, really deep in the rabbit hole, we would consider people fleeing east and south as well. Uh, we just don't have much to go on with regard to that. We know people, the cities of the bloodless men and the, all these other cities, Carcosa, people would maybe have fled to those places. Uh, maybe they would flee to places like Masovi or south to like Olthos? We don't even know what's on Olthos. But. Well, when you go to like Carcosa and places like that, which by the way, Carcosa has somebody claiming to be the emperor of Yi-T over there. So they, yeah. they have a connection to this lore. And you almost think of like, let's say when Azor High wins and, and kicks the ass of, of the, the bad people or whatever, some of those bad people might have fled to places like Carcosa and taken refuge there, or like Nefer, the city of sorcerers and dark magic and shit. Um, and then, of course, we've also, Aziz, talked about some of the freaks and mutants that are in Sothorios having been possibly like the result of the genetic experiments of the Bloodstone Emperor, uh, like an island of Dr. Moreau kind of thing almost. So um, that, is, that is another possibility. And then you, you imagine the people who went to Valeria probably went there by ship um, from Ashai. So... Yeah, you've got all kinds of fleeing from the area. But um, to, like you said, two of these roads, they dump you right out on the Great Grass Sea near uh, Vase Dothrak. Um, and once you get through the mountains, both roads essentially then run to Vase Dothrak and also the Mother of Mountains and the Sacred Womb of the World. So this all kind of fits together. The Dothraki have ancient memories of coming over the bones from the east, as we just read, the hard evidence proves that thousands of people did just that, and two of these mountain passes lead right to the lands that the Dothraki now occupy. So although the Dothraki now rule the entire plain of the grasslands, this has only been true since the doom of Valeria and the century of blood that followed. And before that, they seem to have been clustered in the east right next to the bones. So go ahead and read this one, Aziz. 
Travelers name these haunted lands for the many ruined cities that dot them, or the great desolation for their emptiness. But it is as the Dothraki Sea that these grasslands are best known today. That usage is comparatively recent, however, for the Dothraki are a young race, and it was only since the doom destroyed Valyria that their Kalasars came to dominate these lands, sweeping out of the east with fire and steel to conquer and destroy the ancient cities that once thrived here and carrying off their peoples into bondage. So that's like I was saying about the, the road couldn't originally have been theirs because they're pretty new. They seem to have taken it over and all that, but like a lot of other things. It's one of the few things they didn't destroy. <laughs> they well, just took it over. We're going to get to the Fisher Queens um, uh, eventually here, and they are cool. do seem to be a Dawn Age civilization. Um, and so some people like to wonder if the Great Empire might have had communion with the Fisher Queens. If you want to speculate about that, you can. Uh, and perhaps that's the origin of the roads. Um, but in any case, the important part is the sweeping out of the east part. So before they spread out and conquered the kingdom of Sarnor, which we'll talk about in a minute, the ancestors of the modern Dothraki existed basically in the steppes of the Bones Mountains, most likely uh, between the womb of the world and the, and the bones. And the steppe land is where nomadic horse tribes tend to live anyway, like we were talking about earlier. So that kind of makes sense. And then elsewhere in the same grassland section of the World of Ice and Fire, it speaks of the Sarnori leading, quote, many a foray against the bands of nomadic horsemen which roamed the steppes to the east throughout their history, uh, sort of just to drive the point home. So the picture that emerges is that the ancestors of the Dothraki seem to have crossed the bones in the north, in the center of the bones, and then basically settled in the natural habitat that they found right on the other side of the mountains. They seem to have remained bottled up in the east by the kingdom of Sarnor and the presence of Valyria for centuries and millennia until they weren't, and then they swept westward. This next bit is the, uh, the beginning of the Dothraki's encroachment on Sarnor following the doom. Contemptuous of the horse lords, who had been no more than a nuisance to them for centuries, the tall men ignored the threat from the east for far too long, even as the Kalasars began to raid across their eastern marches. Historically, these guys kind of remind me of the... This, 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 these stories remind me a lot of... Since you've heard the, the, the uh, Dan Carlin con stuff, this reminds me of how the... The, the horse lords defeated the, the Russian princes, the Russian principalities by them kind of, they were too busy fighting each other and ignoring this great threat. Well, having, having read a lot more about that, I can see a lot of these comparisons here too that I wasn't as aware of when we did the Great Empire of the Dawn episode or, uh, back in 2016. Yeah, that's why it's nice to revisit it. Like at first we were yeah. pretty, pretty focused on the whole Dragon Lords thing. Um, but now that we've sort of got that established, we can sort of follow up on it and see that there's other layers um, here to, to explore. So, Alrighty, so the tall men are the Sarnori, and their great kingdom or federation of kingdoms existed for several thousand years, essentially concurrent with Valeria. In the shadow of this great civilization existed the horse lords of the Dothraki, which had been no more than a nuisance to the Sarnori up until the century of blood. They essentially prevented the Dothraki from spreading east, the Sarnori did, and this gives us the entire history of the Dothraki, more or less. Their ancestors crossed the bones, they settled on the steppe land just on the other side of the mountains, and then when the giant post-Valerian power vacuum opened up, they moved west and destroyed the kingdoms of Sarnor, making them the rulers of the entire grass sea that they are now. We can also observe the Dothraki threat to the Sarnori seems to have built up gradually before finally overwhelming them. So we can probably infer that the destabilization from the fall of Valeria just sort of happened to coincide with the growth of the Dothraki's populace, power, and ambition. 
George even wrote a Genghis Khan-like figure into the history, Cal Mango, who was the first Cal to unite the clans, as they say, turning fractious horse tribes into one unified and terrible fighting force that would come to be known as the Dothraki, just as Genghis Khan did with the Mongols. Uh, Now, we're going to come back to the Sarnori and the discussion of the dispersal patterns following the collapse of the Great Empire, but let's pause that for a second and take a look at the cultural and religious beliefs of the Dothraki, which seem to show evidence of a Great Empire of the Dawn heritage. So put the maps in the back of your head, and now let's do a little bit of not-quite-symbolism talk, but we're going to talk about the religions. We're going to do a comparative religion here. So the main such link is the idea of an astronomy-based religion. The first god empire, god emperor of the great empire of the dawn was said to descend from heaven at the beginning of his life and to then ascend to heaven at the end. And the last god emperor was the bloodstone emperor who worshipped a fallen star and founded the Church of Starry Wisdom, which is an actual astronomy-based religion that still exists in the current day of the story. Now, if a comet was the root cause of the long night, as I proposed, then the Bloodstone Emperor may have either timed his dark deeds of blood magic, which I remembered as having caused the long night, to the comet's arrival, or he may have even summoned it somehow through dark magic. The official religion of the Great Empire seems to have been worship of the Maiden Maid of Light and the Lion of Night, who were thought of as being in harmony before the long night. And then during the long night, the Maiden Maid of Light supposedly turned her back on the world and the Lion of Night came out to punish the wickedness of man. That is the clue that the maiden uh, represents the bright face of the sun, which is the exact thing that is elsewhere said to turn its back on the world during the long night. The Lion of Night I have interpreted as the more esoteric idea of a dark sun for various reasons, including the fact that the lion is the classic animal to depict the sun, and so a Lion of Night would be like a dark sun or a night sun. I've talked more about that elsewhere, and it has roots in a few real-world mythologies, such as um, uh, the Mesoamerican uh, myth of the—oh, God, uh, what's his name? It's the jaguar god of terrestrial fire and war, and his name is Akbal. Akbal. That's him. So, bad news. In any case, it's a night sun. It's a dark sun. Uh, And I've talked about that more elsewhere, so— I won't go into detail at that now, but it is out there. And it's also an alchemy idea, the philosopher's son that he can see even during uh, the nighttime. So in any case, it's cool. It's a little bit off, off of a side branch. But the point is, it's based on astronomy. Um, and so before the long night, uh, day and night would have been in balance, just as the maid made of light and the line of night were said to be. And then during the long night, darkness reigns, the sun has turned dark. So it's essentially a solar religion. And the maiden maid of light is surely based on the Japanese sun goddess Amaterasu, as we've talked about before. Now, we know a lot more about the Dothraki religion than the Great Empire of the Dawn, and it is very heavy on astronomy. Um, They believe that the sun and moon are... Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, They believe uh, (laughs) that the sun and moon are are man and wife, for starters, and gods as well. The two Dothraki girls giggled and laughed. You are foolish, strawhead slave, Erie said. Moon is no egg. Moon is God, woman, wife of sun. It is known. It is known, Jiki agreed. Yeah, I mean, they're right, right? The moon, I have always thought of the moon as a, something that I need to crack into a giant pan and cook up with some butter. I mean, yeah, and, and eclipses are very <laughs> sexy, are they not? <laughs> Represent, yes. uh, that's yes. a hard the hottest thing that happens in the- 
Totally. So, yeah. um, let's see. So we also know that Danny calls Drogo my sun and stars while he calls her moon of my life. And this probably <laughs> reflects a natural association between the cow and the sun in Dothraki culture, just as, you know, the classic golden crown that kings wear signifies the favor of whatever sun god their culture worships, generally speaking. Um, sun gods aren't exactly rare, but it is worth noting that both the Dothraki and the Great Empire regard the sun as a god. Now, more important are the Dothraki beliefs concerning stars. This is from a Danny chapter of A Game of Thrones. The Dothraki believed the stars were horses made of fire, a great herd that galloped across the sky by night. Yeah. Sounds about right. <laughs> totally. And even in Westeros, the maesters know of this um, belief. And this is from a Theon chapter of A Clash of Kings. The crows came in the blue dusk with the evening stars. The Dothraki believe the stars are spirits of the valiant dead, Theon said. Maester Lewin had told him that a long time ago. So this fiery horde, made up of the Dothraki ancestors and the mother of mountains with its black lake, the womb of the world, are basically the holiest things in Dothraki religion. Drogo swears by them when he vows to retake the seven kingdoms for Danny. This I swear before the mother of mountains as the stars look down in witness. There's a lot of talk about the Dothraki doing things out in the open so the stars can bear witness. I mean, those are their ancestors, after all. Mm -hmm. This has to remind us of how the first emperor of the great empire, the god on earth, was thought to ascend to the stars at the end of his reign. For 10,000 years, the great empire, the dawn, flourished in peace and plenty under the god on earth until at last he ascended to the stars to join his forebears. So this is a direct match. Um... Ascended to the stars to join his forebears. I mean, when you think back to Drogo's funeral pyre from which the dragons hatched, Danny does indeed perceive Drogo as ascending to the stars to join his forebears in this starry Kalasar. In fact, let's take a look at the Dothraki funeral ceremony, as it's really poetic and beautiful, as well as being interesting. These quotes are pulled from the same chapter in the order they appear, uh, but there are parts cut out in between that don't pertain to our discussion. They took the two straightest trees, hacked the limbs and branches from them, skinned off their bark, and split them, laying the logs in a square. Its center they filled with straw, brush, bark shavings, and bundles of dry grass. Ricaro chose a stallion from the small herd that remained to them. He was not the equal of Caldrogo's red, but few horses were. In the center of the square, Ego fed him a withered apple and dropped him in an instant with an axe blow between the eyes. Over the carcass of the horse, they built a platform of hewn logs, trunks of smaller trees and limbs from the greater, and the thickest, straightest branches they could find. They laid the wood east to west from sunrise to sunset. The third level of the platform was woven of branches no thicker than a finger and covered with dry leaves and twigs. They laid them north to south from ice to fire and piled them high with soft cushions and sleeping silks. So this is one of the only places where the phrase ice and fire is used in some form. The only other ones I can recall are the oaths that Jojen Amir swear to Bran and Rhaegar's comments about his son having a song of ice and fire. So this seems pretty significant. It, and this is also a very old concept and a deeply magical one. The pyre here is aligned to the cardinal directions, the aforementioned ice and fire representing north and south, and sunrise and sunset for east and west. This is a staple concept of pagan and hermetic magical traditions, and it's an intrinsically astronomical concept. So after preparing Drogo's body by washing, braiding, scented oils, whatnot, uh, his body is placed on the pyre, and Danny spells out the specifics of the Dothraki beliefs. 
When a horse lord dies, his horse is slain with him, so he might ride proud into the nightlands. The bodies are burned beneath the open sky, and the call rises on his fiery steed to take his place among the stars. The more fiercely the man burned in life, the brighter his star will shine in the darkness. So I have a, I have a little logistical question to throw out here, something I don't think we talked about before, and I wonder how it plays into some of this worship and the Church of Starry Wisdom. Maybe this is a question for later, so I'll throw it out, and if you think we should talk about it later, just let me know. The question is, consider the nature of the long night. When, if it's a product uh, in part of ash, moon meteor ash, etc., blocking the, the light, people wouldn't be able to see the stars anymore. And that's very important if they're cut off from their gods, if that's a belief, that's a part of their religion and they can no longer see their ancestors. That's like fundamentally like, whoa, like their whole, that's not just life changing, that's not just world changing, that's just their, their whole religion is under attack from some force that's beyond their conception. And that's just really interesting. So like, that, that, like the Church of Starry Wisdom, their beliefs go back this far. That might be something that... Uh, they were searching for, you know, it, maybe that relates to the Danes and seeing, you know, a meteor in the sky. Maybe some of these are some, some of the first signs that the sky was showing them light again, things like that. I don't know. There's a, a lot of, a lot of uh, fertile ground there for, for theorizing and thinking about what that would be like to, to lose the sky. You know, that's, that's a great point. Um, th- this is the, the thing again, that we, we lose with our modern, sort of, you know, understanding and modern, you know, mentality, like before science came along and explained things in a way that is like, I mean, before science came along, the, the idea of established universal fact didn't even really exist. Like you could explain floods or diseases any way you wanted. And people did. They explained them every damn way possible. I just shared this crazy article on Twitter about like some of the remedies that people used to believe, like in the in the in the Renaissance period and in medieval Europe, almost all the monarchs had crazy arsenic and mercury poisoning uh, because they thought that arsenic and mercury were really good remedies for like all kinds of things, like constipation and whatnot. So, like, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. So, in any case, before science came along and established such things as objective, provable fact, um, you know, things like the stars the natural forces of nature, they were always seen as divine, powerful forces, gods and goddesses. And think about that, being cut off from the stars. You know, like, think about how the animals freak out during a solar eclipse. Um, We just had a good solar eclipse last year. And if you live on a street where you have dogs, they were all howling. They were upset. The birds were freaking out, dude. They... Animals do not like that shit, and ancient man would have been a little more like that, where the the removal of the sun and the stars would have been highly disconcerting, especially if you really believe that those are your ancestors. So when we hear about the Bloodstone Emperor casting down the true gods, I think that's almost like part of it. Like, he blocked the view of the, the people couldn't see the maiden made of light, they couldn't see their ancestors and the stars. I mean, they really would have felt cut off from the gods. So great well, point. I, as someone, Zachary Grinnikoff here in the chat raises another sub-question. Like, people would navigate by the stars. They wouldn't even be able to do that. You know, like, you would lose your ability oh, yeah. to navigate if you're, if you're outside of familiar terrain at all. You'd be like, Where the, what direction am I going? Yeah, that's just, 
this is the, the, the all the different little things we take for granted about the sun rising every day, <laughs> the stars being there at night is it's hard to conceptualize what it would be without those things. So this is great. George is um, giving us clues here to associate the Dothraki flaming se- steeds in the sky and dragons because Drogo's fiery seed turns out to be the red comet, which is the dragon's tail. There's actually a whole other layer to this concept as the dragons themselves may contain the souls of dead dragon lords, as Jace Dargarian of Westeros.org has discovered by decoding the puzzle of the Valerian-looking lemurs of the Norvashi forests. And Aziz, I'm going to have to stop and give you this theory real quick because this is great. It's really, really short. Okay, so this goes back to Westeros.org from several years ago. My buddy Jace Dargarian, he says, I've had an idea about lemurs since last April. I noticed the silver hair, purple eyes thing while looking at Danny's third A Game of Thrones chapter, and then the possible significance of that part was confirmed with the little Valerian's line from the World of Ice and Fire. And in case you don't know what we're talking about, um, the lemurs of the Forest of Kohor are called little Valerians because they have silver hair and purple eyes. It's a really weird throwaway line. Uh, but he says um, a few things to keep in mind with this idea are the literal and figurative association of Targaryens and Valerians and dragons, the likely involvement of blood magic, shadow binding in the hatching of Danny's dragons, and the Carthian celestial origin story of dragons. So lemurs comes from the Latin word lemuris, which means spirits of the dead. Now, the Dothraki ah. believe the stars... Okay, yeah, check this out. So the Dothraki believe the stars were, made, were horses made of fire, a great herd that galloped across the sky at night. So he says, to me, horses made of fire read a lot like dragons, especially since those fiery mounts are in the sky. They're flying. And okay, I just mentioned... bitter steel. <laughs> His sigil. Well, there's the whole <laughs> bitter steel thing. We just did yeah. the silver seahorse symbolism with the Valerians, oh, horses and yeah. dragons being linked. And then, of course, sea Drogo's... Horse, yeah. Right, and then, of course, Drogo's steed is the Red Comet. So there's a lot of crossover there with the, the flying star horses and dragons. So, and this is one of those Dothraki calls, like that old school one named like the Dragon of the North or something like that? Caldeco, yes. Daco. Totally. Mm-hmm. Daco, yeah, that's kind of vaguely so, sounds like Draco. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, exactly. Draco or Draconic, something like that, right? So in Clash, we read a different version of what the Dothraki supposedly believe the stars are. The Dothraki believe the stars are spirits of the valiant dead, Theon said. So wait, they're horses made of fire, or are they the spirits of the valiant dead? Those seem like different things, but that doesn't necessarily mean there must be a contradiction. They can be both if the spirits of the valiant dead inhabit dragons via shadow binding. Wait, what? Yes, check it out. So Targaryens (laughs) like to say that they are the blood of the dragon, and some people write that off as nonsense, while others believe that they might actually have dragon's blood. Well, what if it's the other way around? What if dragons have not Targaryen Valerian blood per se, but are inhabited by the shades of dead Targaryens and Valerians, and that is how the dragons were bound to certain families within the Freehold? Ares II and Arian Brightflame both believed that they could turn themselves into dragons with wildfire. Of course, we completely dismiss this as crazy, Targness at its finest, because both of those characters were in fact crazy Targs. But it wouldn't surprise me in the least if George was hiding an element of truth in the actions of Ares and Arion, two characters with little to no credibility. So why do we get a couple of references to lemurs, including the very obvious little Valerians in the world book? Because Targaryens slash Valerians are figurative dragons, and dragons contain the spirits of the dead. 
In many cases, it might well be the spirits of the dead dragon lords. So just a cool little theory, but again, it sort of adds to the idea that we can look at these beliefs about the stars and ascending to the stars and see that it could work very well as a remnant of the beliefs of the great empire, which the ancestors of the Dothraki might have brought with them over the Bones Mountains. So that's, that's basically the idea. I mean, it's a very similar concept of ascending to the stars. So if they, if they came from over the Bones Mountains, like they said they did, it's possible that this idea is a holdover. What do you think of that? Hmm. Mallory, what yeah. do you think? Let me I ask you. think I think it it could be a holdover, and I like I really like that idea because I feel like they definitely did come from there. Like I feel like the I like it. Sorry, I'm not good with words. You know this. <laughs> You're in the depths of arting right now, but I just wanted to give you a little chance to chime in because it was witchy blood magic shit. So you know. Well, it's yeah, really, yeah, it's 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 so clever to use because lemur is such a peculiar animal choice there but then you know you get it goes once you start digging it's like oh there's a lot of there's a lot here lemuria etc that's obviously makes you think of lost continents and peoples and all that so oh totally yeah that that (laughs) slipped right by me and this also (laughs) slipped by by me chicken lipstick says any connection between the targs and the dothraki both burning their dead hello yeah i that's that's what i was gonna say actually thank you chicken lipstick um they burn their dead, and the Targaryen practice. I think we learned a little bit more about it in Fire and Blood, right? Like uh, uh, a, a little bit, yeah, tiny little bit. But like, um, it makes sense. I, I personally am of the belief. What um, what I should have said when LML asked me is, I'm personally of the belief that the Targaryens are dragons, like just in human form, like some hmm. weird way. Some kind of genetic manipulation. It's tinfoil, I know. Well, it's hey, scary, but that's exactly the main topic of the episode that I just finished writing last night. Is is how much of that is because that's a big part of Gagasos is is they had the flesh pits, which yes. were where they mated beasts and humans, and then they had yeah. So yeah, it's um. There's something right there. Something especially with like with the worms we saw in Fire and Blood and like what the heck is in a shy like yes that I mean I was thinking about that earlier when we were talking about it um, like there's got to be something one little piece of the puzzle I think we're really missing and once we find it we're gonna be like oh it all makes sense now I get it I get why this is that and whatever but yeah. I think like sometimes we look at George's words and we may not necessarily overinterpret but like look for things like too hard and there's a line in fire and blood that says targaryens are different targaryens are dragons Mm. and it's like italicized and i was like oh could that really just be him telling us like no way but it would be interesting i hope we get more yeah the uh, there's also this whole bit about um how this is a, another sign of George's consistency with his world building because he's remarked or not remarked, but written that the Dothraki religion is uh, they worship the earth and they don't, they know they're against farming and tilling. So it wouldn't make sense for them to bury their dead if they're against that sort of thing. Yeah. So burning them is, is, ah, yes, of course they, and they don't have stones around for cairns. That just isn't log- a logistical option for them often enough. So, if you look at all the different ways ancient societies in the in the real world di- disposed of bodies, 
it's the right choice for George to have made, given what else other details he made for for how this culture works. So it's it's awesome. And yeah, they could have maybe and they could easily have learned it from a prior a prior existing culture like uh, if not the Jogos Nai, who they descend from, then these other nearby cultures, the Great Empire or the Valyrians or both, maybe. So just so just think about this, all right? If you're a culture that believes that their first god emperor descended from the stars and then ascended back to the stars, and you believe that the stars are your ancestors, then you basically believe that when people die, they go up to the stars. So it would make sense if those are your beliefs that you burn people upon dying because what does their smoke do? It rises up to the sky. And that's exactly what we see um, with at Drogo's Pyre. And we know, you know, switching over to mythical astronomy symbolism talk, we know that the smoke pyre is a symbol of the weirwoods and communicating with the stars and rising up to heaven and astral projection and all that stuff. So it makes sense if you're a culture that believes that dead people need to go up and, and join the stars that you, you would burn them so that their their body can turn into smoke and rise to heaven. So, I mean, it's very logical, to be honest. The only other thing I can think of in, as far as world world practices go, I'm, I don't remember the, um, it's an Asiatic culture and they do sky burials. I believe it's a society of monks where they basically, you just leave mm. your, your body out to, to the, the elements and yeah. whatever comes. I have a friend that saw one of those ceremonies. He was a kind of a wanderer, traveler guy, and he yeah. went to it was Tibet. Yeah, they it's it's sort of it reminds you of the uh, it's vaguely similar to the to the Erie because the bodies are are thrown off of a cliff. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, so that would be um, that would make sense too. Oh, and there's also the Native American practice of building like a a platform, almost like a, a wooden. Uh, not a pyre because it doesn't get burnt, but a platform and the body's laid on it and it's exposed to the elements that way. Yeah. And then animals come by and uh, the the like the the animals like eagles and hawks, not ground animals, because the the platform is you know it's raised up so the the ground ground animals would have a hard time getting to it. So I guess that's an o- other thing, another possibility for an outdoor burial. But the Dothraki wouldn't have that option either because they they live on a great grass step. There aren't trees for building these platforms so easily. Found. Yeah. You know, there's some out there, clearly, because Danny built a pyre for Drogo. But, you know, they wouldn't be as widely available. I've heard of that idea, too. Like, if your body is eaten by birds, then you you go, you go up into the sky. I mean, you eventually turn into yeah. bird poop, but let's not talk about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you actually get dropped back on the ground, maybe on some unlucky monk's head. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to the script here. Um, as for which lineage of the great empire of the Dawn the Dothraki descend from, well... That's obvious. The Onyx mm-hmm. Emperor, of course. The gemstones of the emperors correlate to eye color, at least in Danny's Wake the Dragon Dream. And the very first time Danny sees Drogo in her very first chapter, we get this. Cal Drogo has never lost a fight. He is Aegon the Dragon Lord, come again, and you will be his queen. Danny looked at Cal Drogo. His face was hard and cruel, his eyes as cold and dark as Onyx. There it is. As Onyx. There it is. <laughs> uh, so in this scene, Danny was comparing the cruelty of Ceres to Drogo's looks, and Illyrio calls him a reborn dragon lord. So there's two different dragon associations placed on Drogo right here. Um, so it, I think it's interesting that the Onyx eyes, which could be a reference to the dragon lords of the Great Empire, comes side by side with the suggestion of Drogo as a reborn dragon lord. And then later, 
when Drogo is turning that cruelty against Viserys, we get another Drogo's eyes as Onyx reference. Even now, Viserys did not understand. No, he shouted. You cannot touch me. I am the dragon, the dragon, and I will be crowned. Khal Drogo unfastened his belt. The medallions were pure gold, massive and ornate, each one as large as a man's hand. He shouted a command. Cook slaves pulled a heavy iron stew pot from the fire pit, dumped the stew onto the ground, and returned the pot to the flames. Drogo tossed in the belt and watched without expression as the medallions turned red and began to lose their shape. She could see fires dancing in the onyx of his eyes. So, as a nod to the astronomy side of things, note the comparison of Drogo to Aegon the Dragon Lord in the first scene, and the description of his onyx eyes containing dancing fires as he prepared to kill the dragon Viserys, who is less than the shadow of a snake. Now, both of these ideas are consistent with the idea of Drogo playing the role of the sun to Daenerys' moon, between Drogo's star being the red comet, which is like a dragon, Drogo giving his name to a huge black dragon, Drogon, and this comparison between Drogo and Aegon, you have to wonder if George wasn't already thinking about the Dothraki having an ancient connection to the Far East. Sorry if that wording was a little bit convoluted. Reading back over it is a little messy, but you get the point. Like, there's a lot of dragon associations with Drogo, um, and so you just have to wonder between the onyx eyes, you know, maybe George was already implying this. But to be honest, I wouldn't bet my life on it. It is also possible that he could have retconned this idea, in a sense, in the world of Ice and Fire, because um, he, maybe George included the onyx emperor in the list of Great Empire of the Dawn Emperors to essentially retroactively create this tie to the Dothraki. Certainly by the time he wrote The World of Ice and Fire, he was thinking this, as evidenced by the quote about the Dothraki having a memory of crossing over the Bones Mountains. And that's kind of what's important, really. I mean, it's fun to try to figure out when George had which idea, because we know he's a gardener, uh, a gardener-style writer. But at the end of the day, whatever he decides is true has basically always been true. And thus we have this theory here that the Dothraki are implied as having fled from the Great Empire of the Dawn. Now, additional corroboration of the Dothraki having an origin east of the Bones Mountains can be found in the similarities between their culture and that of the Jogos Nai, the horse riders on the far eastern plains, or should I say Zorse riders, (laughs) whose whose lands lie squarely inside the old borders of the Great Empire of the Dawn. Good section. And let me get, uh, I got a couple more snazzy patron names to read here. Somewhere, kicking around, where are they? Oh, yes. Oh, boy, I've got a couple of old school myth heads finally jumped on board and got themselves some nicknames. You're going to like these two. Here we go. Cool. The Jogos Nye. This next section is brought to you by two new members of the Priesthood of Starry Wisdom. There's Jimmy Wayne Dane, the unshockable Uktena, whose words are... The waning crescent rain falls mainly on the Danes. And Tom Ma- <laughs> Tom on yeah. Dragon means moon dragons, aka Tom the Pan Doubter Doubter, aka Tom O Elevens. So yeah, Jimmy Wayne Dane, the waning crescent rain, which is moon meteors, falls mainly on the Danes. I was pretty proud of that. <laughs> Hope you're out there, Jimmy Wayne. Hope you enjoy that whenever you see that. And then, uh, yeah, Tom Mondragon. His his last name is Mondragon, which means moon dragons. And since he's Tom, he's a doubting Thomas. So he's Tom the Pan Doubter Doubter. 
So he doubts the existence of Pandowder. That's it's so deep. It's deep, yeah. That's that's what I got. The Jogos Nai have a culture which parallels that of the Dothraki in many ways, but with several key differences. Logic would dictate that the Dothraki culture has branched off from the original horse lord culture since they came over the mountains from the lands which the Jogos Nai still inhabit. So we will generally interpret the culture of the Jogos Nai as being closer to that of their potential common ancestor. It seems like they only have Zorses east of the bones, which is what the Jogos Nai ride. So we can assume that the Dothraki ancestors adapted their Zorse riding skills to the larger horses that they found on the other side of the mountain. Unlike the Dothraki, whose cows, whose cows lead the huge calisars across the grasslands, the Jogos Nai travel in small bands, closely connected by blood. Each band is le- led by a jot, or a war chief, and a moon singer who combines the roles of priestess, healer, and judge. The jot leads in war and battle and raid, whilst the other matters are ruled by the band's moon singer. Um, Dothraki cows make endless war on one another beyond the sacred precincts of Vase Dothrak, their holy city, but the gods of the Jogos Nai uh, forbid them to shed the blood of their own people. And although, although young men do ride out to steal goats, dogs, and zorses from other bands, while their sisters go forth to abduct husbands in a sort of weird inversion of the uh, wildling custom of stealing wives. Um, uh, but these are rituals hallowed by the gods of the plains during which no blood may be shed. So even though they have these sort of you know, things that they do, they, they still don't kill each other. It's an important thing. Uh, instead, the Jogos Nai make endless war on basically everyone else, from the Golden Empire of Yi-Ti to the former patrimony of Hercoon, which is former, possibly in large part due to the Jogos Nai, um, to the vanquished stone giants of the northern bone mountains, the Jogwin, who the Jogos Nai did kill and eradicate. And then there's also the Nagai, a people who have been reduced to one foggy underground city called Nefer. Now, although the Dothraki Kalasars are much larger than the bands of the Jogos Nai, they are united by an oath of brotherhood between a cow and his blood riders, which can be seen as a kind of ritual adoption. The ancient horse riders fleeing over the mountains would likely have been fragments of decimated kin groups, so it makes sense that they might have adopted each other via blood oath as a way of uniting to survive in a new land. And for that observation, I need to give a major hat tip to Brainfire Bob of Westeros.org. Um, I thought you'd like that one, Aziz. Yeah, brain fire, Bob. Just oh no, not his name. I meant the, the point. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, both. Yeah, I do. I like both. Yeah, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, they, they really would have been decimated kin groups, and the Dothraki culture of sort of adopting each other as brothers, it really does make a lot of sense. So, the gen- yeah, it does. The, the things were so desperate. I mean, infighting would have to have. You know, we we see infighting can can happen even when things are falling apart all around but this is another level of things falling apart all around i mean the long night is unlike any sort of the world that things are bad <laughs> this is this is on uh, a whole nother level of that yeah so uh, i agree the jogos nigh taboo against killing other jogos nigh seems to have broken down during the course of the dothraki's migration and establishment of their new culture But we do see an echo of this tradition in the Dothraki taboo against making war on each other within sight of the Mother of Mountains or shedding any blood of any kind in Vase Dothrak. 
I thought that was a pretty cool uh, correlation. What do you think about that one? That is pretty cool. You wonder, because it is very odd, given how just utterly warlike they are, and that they have, like, a truce zone. Um, you wonder... You know, it's always fascinating to me that, that ultra-violent societies can have something like that, where they have they somehow develop a, a place where you can't fight or... a um, a sacred space like that and it's it's not without its real world parallels so that's uh that's that's pretty neat the notion of not spilling blood in certain places is is a real world concept obviously it's uh we see it in other places even in planetos with with um some other spots in the east and i think there's some some prohibitions elsewhere too that i'm kind of the ironborn ironborn uh, yeah of course um uh, spilling the blood of each other uh is is a pro is a prohibition so, um, and that's obviously the other side of the world, or sort of, maybe. <laughs> that's a whole other story. But, um, yeah, so I think uh, some of this stuff is, is just so well thought out. And when we, we peel back the layers, I'm endlessly fascinated by how it still works and stuff fits together. And, and, as well as crossing over into what we know about the real world, minus the fantasy elements. But sometimes the fantasy elements are kind of there because in the real world people believed these things earnestly even if now our modern senses are like, ah, that was just made up. But if they truly believe it, it still has uh, authenticity to it because their actions are authentic. Yeah, absolutely. And George is totally into this idea of like cultural transmission. um, And he really likes to play on that idea of how things mutate and change over time. So the idea that a prohibition against killing each other altogether on one side of the mountains sort of mutates a bit over time and migration. And now their culture is different, but there's still this remnant of that belief. That kind of makes sense as far as George just trying to recreate that natural evolution of culture. So both of our nomadic horse warrior cultures seem to eschew the notion of inherited right to rule. The Dothraki cows are always the mightiest warriors, and if they become severely injured or weak, they lose their legitimacy and authority. Khaleesi, Jiki said. He fell from his horse. Trembling, her eyes full of sudden tears, Danny turned away from them. He fell from his horse. It was so. She had seen it. And the blood riders, and no doubt her handmaids, and the men of her Kaas as well. And how many more? They could not keep it secret, and Danny knew what that meant. A call who could not ride could not rule. And Drogo had fallen from his horse. A call who cannot ride is no call, said Joko. The Dothraki follow only the strong, Sir Jorah said. And then a moment later... They took Khal Drogo's herds, Khaleesi, Rakaro said. We were too few to stop them. It is the right of the strong to take from the weak. They took many slaves as well, the Khals and yours. Yet they left some few. So we don't get the details of how the Moonsingers and Jots are chosen, but the Jogos Nye do occasionally raise up a Jatar a war leader or jot of jots, and this does seem to be a matter of choosing and not family legacy. Uh, For example, we're told that when facing extinction at the hands of Lobu, the 43rd Scarlet Emperor of Yiti, 1,000 rival clans of the Jogos Nye gathered together and chose a female warrior named Zia Zorsface as Jatar, which turned out to be a great decision. <laughs> this is probably a good place to briefly note the general badassery of the Jogos Nye. Not only did Zia Zorsface string out Lobu's 13 armies, hello, last hero math, isolating and destroying each in turn before killing Lobu himself, gilding his skull, and making a drinking cup out of it. We also hear of Garrick Squint Eye, 
uh, a Jogos Nye who slew the last of the Jogwin, the stone giants of the Bones Mountains. It's hard to say what or what exactly those stone giants really were, but they don't sound like easy prey. The Jogos Nye also whooped up on Hercoon for many centuries and likely had something to do with their downfall. So the Jogos Nye are generally a bad, they're badasses. That's that's kind of the point. Um, so it seems that it seems that the tight. Uh, familial bonds of the Jogos Nai and their extreme hostility to outsiders might have arisen as a survival mechanism during the anarchy of the long night and the difficult living conditions that would have persisted long afterwards. So when you hear about the tribes of men going their separate ways and being hostile and suspicious of the other, I mean, that's the Jogos Nai in a nutshell. As the horse riding culture that did not flee the Bloodstone Emperor Holocaust, you know, over the mountains, they would have had to become tough as nails to survive. And I think that's a fine description of the Jogos Nye, tough as nails. So physically, the Jogos Nye are much shorter than the Dothraki, with skin that tends more towards yellow than the bronze of the Dothraki. So the Jogos Nye really are like the Mongols to the Yitish Chinese. Um, in George's mind. That's really what it seems to be that he's imagining. And this this does beg the question of where the height of the Dothraki came in. Were they always a taller cousin to the ancient Jogos Nye, even when they were both part of the Great Empire? Or, more likely, I think, did they gain their height through intermarriage with the ancient native peoples of the grasslands after crossing the mountains? We're about to talk about the Sarnori, who are tall like the Dothraki, only more so, and they have the same skin and hair color and eye color as the Dothraki. So there is a potential for these tall genes to have entered the Dothraki gene pool after they cross the mountains. What do you think about that, Aziz? I had not thought about that, but it absolutely fits perfectly given, you know, what we know. It seems kind of straightforward when you lay it out like that. We got the tall men of Sarnor. And the Jogos Nye are kind of short, and the Dothraki are kind of tall, and they're west of the Jogos Nye in between the Sarnori. Yeah, in that sense, it just lines right up. So, yeah, it's one of those things that if you didn't, it's easy to miss, but once it's pointed out, you're like, yep, that fits perfectly. Don't have, I don't really have anything to add other than saying it fits really well. So, yeah, it is, it is, um, we're, and so when we get, to, in a minute, we're going to talk about the Sarnori, and it says that the, the first king of the Sarnori Who's Hor Ami, the amazing, he unified three different peoples, uh, two of which are described as being tall. So I think the idea of tall people running around the grasslands seems to be the case. We've even got the very tall people, who the maze makers, who built Lorath. Um, and we found their skeletons, and that's how we know that they were very tall. So if you really want to get out there, you can connect that. So in any case, the Dothraki reverence for the mother of mountains and the womb of the world is certainly lunar in nature. Mountains, whose peaks float in the sky like moons, as we just saw with that quote about the Bones Mountains, and lakes, whose surfaces shine like the moon, are specifically used as metaphors for moons throughout the series. Um, The Silver Sea is a definite lunar symbol, and the womb of the world bears the same symbolism. Most importantly, we know that the Dothraki view the moon itself as a goddess and the wife of the sun. The Jogos Nye, on the other hand, have an extreme reverence for their moon singers, who basically govern all aspects of life that don't have to do with war. Although the Dothraki cows are always male, the crones of the Dosh Kaleen have absolute authority and are obeyed without question inside of Vase Dothrak, which sits at the foot of the mother of mountains by the womb of the world. This seems like an echo of the power held by the moon singers, 
And we have to notice that twice now we see the Dothraki revert to practices much closer to those of the Jogosnai when they are near the mother of mountains and the womb of the world. So that's this is what I'm seeing is that right here in the heart of the Dothraki civilization, we find reverence for women and the moon, and we find these customs that are similar to the Jogosnai. And you go over to the Jogosnai and you find reverence for women and the moon. So it's sort of all of a piece. Um, and as I said, the war leaders of the Jogosnai, the Jats, were usually male, but the moon singers governed all other aspects of society. So um, even including the women kidnapping the husbands, like we were just saying, in a strange inversion of wildling culture. So in other words, women, and specifically the moon singers, were generally more powerful than men in daily life. And thus we see that the Jogosnai are much closer to a matriarchal society than their taller horse rider cousins to the West. And this generally fits with a theme of society moving towards patriarchy after the long night. And that's a little bit of a side conversation that I've touched on elsewhere, but I do think George is showing us that pattern, broadly speaking. Um, for example, the Fisher Queens was the ultimate matriarchy, and that was seemed to be a pre-long night civilization that was replaced by the Sarnori and then eventually the Dothraki. So you can see it sliding downhill towards like violent patriarchy, essentially, from a matriarchal society. Uh, and the Jogos and I sort of fit that. They're closer to matriarchy, and they are closer to the great empire of the dawn. The Jogos and I also have somewhat flexible gender roles, which is not something that patriarchy is really known for, as it is acceptable in their society for a woman to choose to be a warrior or for a man to choose to be a moon singer, although a woman choosing the life of a warrior must dress and live as a man and vice versa. So there you go. Maybe effeminate Varys who shaves his head is actually like doing a moon singer thing. <laughs> Probably not. I think I think he's a merling, but um, yeah, I like how no, she throws no. in when she was when she was uh, throws in that she was better looking than <laughs> when I was younger and more fair. I went in caravan to Ashai by the shadow to learn from their mages. Ships from many lands come to Ashai, so I lingered long to study the healing ways of distant peoples. A moon singer of the Jogos Nai gifted me with her birthing songs. Right, so that's a nice bit of symmetry here, as Danny herself represents the moon, and indeed Drogo calls her moon of my life, a couple of lines uh, right after this quote, just to remind us. So not only is the moon strongly associated with femininity in cultures around the world, in A Song of Ice and Fire, we have the specific theme of sacrifice and childbirth death running all throughout the series. This pattern began with the fire moon's death during childbirth, moon meteor childbirth, and that's what Danny represents, as she was ritually unburnt, uh, burnt or unburnt, if you will, to hatch the dragons into the world just as the fire moon was. So it was like a burning death combined with a, a birth. Thus, it makes perfect sense for the moon singers to know the best birthing songs. And essentially what I'm trying to say is that it's playing on real-world associations between the moon and birthing as well as more specific ideas in A Song of Ice and Fire. So the moon singers of the Jogosnai are also demonstrating the important Song of Ice and Fire theme of everything having its song, as we touched on earlier. The Church of Starry Wisdom sings to the stars. Melisandre and the Reloris do a lot of singing at their night fires. Of course, the real name of the children of the forest is those who sing the songs of Earth. Songs, in this sense, are essentially a form of worship and communion, so it's safe to say that there's a deep reverence for the moon in the cultures of the Jogos Nai. Uh, given that they live inside the great empire of the Dawn's former territory, they may, they may well have been, um, sorry, they may well have a moon destruction legend similar to the Carthine origin of Dragon's story. 
their reverence for the moon may have something to do with a sense of gratitude for the moon we have left, or a memorial for the one that we lost, or perhaps the joy that was felt the first time the clouds cleared enough to see the remaining moon and stars once again. Now, we have elsewhere broken down all the symbolism of the Temple of the Moon Singers in Bravos, and if you recall, it's all cold white marble, milk glass, moon windows, and other ice moon imagery. So that's a, it's a fun topic, but it's kind of off topic here, so we won't go into all of that. And if you want, that is in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. I think it's in the second episode. But cool. uh, they really like the moon. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> and one moon last note, folk. and if it's more specifically, um, it's interesting that their temple mimics the ice moon, which would be the one we have left, if you will. Um, so there could be an association with that. That's why I say they may have like a myth of the second moon that used to exist because they were around back then. Um, and the, the one second moon myth that we do have comes from Karth, who's from the East. So I don't know. I'd, I'd really like to be able to go into the temple of the moon singers and Bravos and be like, Hey, can I see the archives? Can I just sort of <laughs> rummage through there? Well, that'd be nice. <laughs> yes. And, uh, oh, lovely, lovely shaved skull that you have, which, of course, is meant to look like the moon. That's, I don't know if you picked that up, but the moon singers shave their heads. They're bald. So, so the Jogos and I are fun, uh, but they kind of aren't really our main topic here. Um, to fill out the story of the Dothraki, we really have to delve into the kingdom of Sarnor. And that's going to be the last section of today, and it's going to be an awful lot of fun. So, oh, yeah. charging into Sarnor here, the kingdoms of the Sarnori and the Roinar probably tie for the title of most beautiful and advanced civilizations since the Long Night. I mean, these are the places you would want to live if you had to live on Planetos. Not anywhere in Westeros. You'd want to live in Sarnor or amongst the cities of the Roinar. I mean, am I right? Guys, back me up here. You're right. You are right. Uh, my backup would have been quicker if I didn't have to unmute real quick. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, I appreciate that. But no, this is, this is where you'd want to be. So now, tragically, the Dothraki destroyed the former, uh, that being Sarnor, and the Valerians destroyed the latter, that being the Roinar. Um, knowing as we do that many people seem to have fled westward over the Bones Mountains and into the grasslands, we certainly have to take a look at the first and greatest post-Long Night empire of the Grasslands, the Kingdom of Sarnor. The people of the Grasslands from which Sarnor arose seem to represent their own diaspora, independent of the Great Empire of the Dawn, it must be said. However, uh, the remnants of the Great Empire of the Dawn culture seem to have come over the mountains and with the ancestors of the Dothraki and, and all the other fugitives, um, and the same may be true of the ancestors of the Sarnori. There's a nice little sort of rhetorical clue, wordplay clue, tip-off uh, to potentially look for Great Empire of the Dawn fingerprints amongst the kingdom of Sarnor in the world of ice and fire. And it's this line here. Their gleaming cities were strewn across the grasslands like jewels across a green velvet mantle shining beneath the light of sun and stars. So that's not anything I'd base a theory on by any means. It's just one of those ones where you recognize several of the words and you're like, hmm, wait, what, what was that? So jewels across a green mantle calls to mind the gemstone emperors of the great empire of the dawn uh, and the jade and green pearls, which are worn by the Yeetish god emperors, which I presume to be in, in imitation of the great empire of the dawn. 
um, because then you'd have basically jewels across a green mantle, with a mantle literally being like the word for something you wear over your shoulders. So shining beneath the light of sun and stars certainly calls to mind a civilization with a connection to astronomy, and taken together with the cities being compared to gleaming jewels, i.e. gemstones, kind of calls the mind of the gemstone emperors of the great empire of the dawn, perhaps. It could, of course, have no double meaning, uh, but it's an interesting choice of words, and taken with the idea that the refugees from the east pass through the grasslands, there's enough to make us at least stop and take a look and see what we find. On top of all that, it must be said, the Sarnori are just really cool and interesting and fun to talk about. Many amazing things and places are briefly alluded to, which just really tickle the, the curiosity. There's the palace with a thousand rooms where the high king dwelt. There's Sathar, the waterfall city. Salash, the city of scholars with its vast library and painted walls. Sarnath of the tall towers. Mardosh, the unconquerable. Not so unconquerable as it turns out. <laughs> uh, there were, they were warriors, sorcerers, and scholars which is a match for our general perception of the great empire of the Dawn rulers as embracing the use of magic in the pursuit of starry wisdom and knowledge. Uh, thoughts, Aziz, on that in general? Just uh, Obviously, well, so let me, let, me, let, me, uh, let me give you a little, uh, let me tee it up for you. So Sarnath okay. of the Tall Towers, obviously that's a call out to the doom that came to Sarnath. Now the doom that came. That's the first thing I was going to say. Right. So the the thing about the doom that came to Sarnath is Sarnath is a city by a huge lake, and it is implied that the lake has, or is it covered by a lake afterwards? It's both, right? Uh, It's it sits by a lake, and then the lake huge lake, and those things come out of it. Yeah. So it's just like the Silver Sea coming up against the, the kingdom of Sarnor and the yes. city of Sarnath. And then the idea of the... Well, go ahead and take it from there and explain. Give me the, the two-minute doom that came to Sarnath. Okay, so the doom that came to Sarnath is a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. And it's... it's I mean, it's when I say short story, it's very short. It's like 10 pages. And uh, it's, it's basically all kind of world-building because you never get a perspective within it. It's like being told kind of like a narrator. And yeah, you have this rich, powerful culture... That is uh, lived for a long time, and they've started to, and they 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 basically uh, attack or come into conflict with these lake people. And I don't mean like they live by the lake; I mean they live in the lake. They're creepy, kind of lizard people-ish, uh, t- fish frog people, and they are uh, the people. At- the, the humans kind of take those guys down, and many, many, many years later. The people, those fish frog people kind of come back. They emerge from their watery kingdom and slaughter the people of Sarnath. And these are, uh, this land, is it the, the land is called Ib or is it those people are called, I forget. Ib is referenced in there. I forget what it's applied to. Mm-hmm. But so you have Ib and Sarnath, which are obviously right here in this general area of, the, of what's now the Dothraki Sea. Uh, and so you've got these same elements. You've got this lake that these creatures emerge. Well, we don't have the creatures in this case. We have these creatures elsewhere in Martin's world, but uh, they're, they're referenced elsewhere. We have this, this lake. We have this super long, powerful culture that's gotten so big that they've forgotten what's mattered to them, and they've forgotten that they need to, to be wary of this, this ancient evil race or whatever. Uh, so yeah, a lot of the same elements are there and, uh, it's, it's a good story, by the way. I highly recommend it. Um, what I love is that it, it's also got obvious parallels to the Carthian moon destruction myth because mm. the, the monsters that come down and destroy Sarnath come from literally the dark side of the moon. 
They come yeah. down from the dark side of the moon. And uh, Lovecraft is always going on about the monsters that he believes exist on the dark side of the moon. It's in several different stories, including the one with Lang in it. Um, and that is essentially, I think, the thing that gave Martin this idea of dragons coming from the moon. Like, it's got that same idea, like, monsters came out of the moon. The moon cracked open and monsters came down. So there was our Sarnori deta- uh, detour there. Um, so, again, and then, the, so there's a similar idea. Like, the Sarnori are this great civilization living by the lake, and then they get wiped out by the Dothraki, not by frog monsters from the dark side of the moon, but um, still a similar feel going on there. Um, now, the Sarnori themselves are heirs to an older legacy which traces back to the Dawn Age, the kingdom of the Fisher Queens, which ruled the lands adjoining the now-vanished Silver Sea. The maesters of the world of ice and fire, in somewhat contradictory fashion, named several places as the site of the first civilization as we know it. Gis, Yiti, uh, the, cra- the grasslands of the River Sarn, the first cities of the Roinar, and of course the Shai. That indicates that they probably don't know for sure. The only thing we can safely infer from this is that all of these civilizations are among the first to arise after the global disaster of the Long Night, or potentially they are memories of things that existed before the Long Night. So here is Maester Yandel's introduction to the grasslands of the River Sarn. It was here amidst these grasses that civilization was born in the Dawn Age. 10,000 years ago or more, when Westeros was yet a howling wilderness inhabited by the giants and the children of the forest, the first true towns arose beside the banks of the river Sarn and beside the myriad vassal streams that fed her on her meandering course northward to the Shivering Sea. The histories of those days are lost to us, sad to say, for the kingdoms of the grass came and went in large measure before the race of man became literate. Only the legends persist. From such we know of the Fisher Queens, who ruled the lands adjoining the Silver Sea, the great inland sea at the heart of the grasslands, from a floating palace that made its way endlessly around its shores. The Fisher Queens were wise and benevolent and favored of the gods, we are told, and the kings and lords and wise men sought the floating palace for their counsel. Beyond their domains, however, other peoples rose and fell and fought struggling for a place in the sun. Some maesters believe that the first men originated here before beginning the long westward migration that took them across the Arm of Dorne to Westeros. The Andals, too, may have arisen in the fertile fields south of the Silver Sea. You know, I want to add something to that, too. It's neat that we have uh, human, real human archaeology has somewhat recently expanded in scope given some fairly recent findings um, that reveal more possibilities before preliterate times. Um, For example, I know you're familiar with Gobekli Tepe, which is a fascinating, almost creepy edifice built in like 9000 BC, which is longer, which just to give you an idea how long ago that is, that's the pyramids are farther in time from that than we are. From the pyramids. <laughs> yeah. Like, the pyramids were more recent to us than the pyramids were, uh, you know, uh, you, far you ba- away you, from you, them. you mangled it. Let me, let me do it again. So the, yeah. the distance of time... <laughs> so the distance of time between Gobekli Tepe and the pyramids is greater than the time between the pyramids and now. So yeah. Gobekli Tepe is really effing old. And what it's showing... 
what it's showing is essentially that there wasn't a hard line between um, hunter-gatherer and farmer society. There was actually a long blending uh, and a concurrent sort of you know ev- evolution, and it varied by by region. And the picture that's emerging from Gobekli Tepe is like it's something that fairly nomadic people might have built as like a gathering place where they sort of come and gather as a ritualistic type of place, even though they sort of go their own way and do their sort of nomadic thing. So it's really interesting. It's like you said, it's an evolving, um, an evolving body of knowledge, but definitely fun to think about. And also have to stop and shout out Crow Food's daughter and her amazing video about the Dothraki grasslands and the Silver Sea. She's from Nebraska. And so she brought in some of the actual history of the Great Plains in the U.S., which was almost surely formed by glacial lakes and inland seas and things like that. Um, so there's George seems to be on sound uh, geological footing here when he's telling us that there was a giant inland sea that then created a, a huge flat grassland. That is kind of how it works. So JoJo, Lady Dane, or one of my other mods, if you could... Grab that link to Crow Food's Daughter Disputed Lands video about the Silver Sea. Um, and of course, I expect all of you Mythheads watching to already have been subscribed to the Disputed Lands. But here's a reminder if you're not, uh, or if you haven't hit the notification bell and you don't know that she, uh, that was her newest video, then go watch it after this. It's pretty awesome. Uh, so at some point, the mythical sounding kingdom of the Fisher Queens came to an end. And the Silver Sea was reduced to three large lakes. I would certainly place my money on this decline, occurring or at least beginning with a long night disaster. I mean, it's a global traumatic climate event. That's just the sort of thing which would transform an inland sea to three great lakes uh, if it didn't happen gradually over time. You know, it may have gotten a big boost from that. And again, we look to all the drying out in the east, the... the, the uh, the red waste and you know all the shrinking sea stuff so this sort of fits that pattern of um of it drying out in general and uh, the symbolism of the silver sea ruled by a matriarch is very strongly evocative of lunar imagery and the silver sea itself fits the pattern that we see occasionally of one moon-shaped thing breaking apart into three things for example danny hatched three dragon's eggs when she, the moon, wandered into the fire. So there's other examples of that pattern. I've sort of gotten away from emphasizing that as much as ease as I used to uh, in the olden days when I was trying to figure out, like, how many meteors were there and where did they land? <laughs> and I sort of backed away from trying to figure that out um, in, in, you know, in, in too much specifics. But we do occasionally see that pattern of, like, the moon breaks up into three, in, into the three-headed dragon, if you will. But... uh yeah, and when he does those threes and or sevens or whatever, that's you gotta at least give a give a second look just in case. Sometimes three is just three, <laughs> but sometimes it's the Trinity or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> exactly. So now it should be noted that the Dothraki womb of the world seems to be a remnant of the Silver Sea, and this is something Crowfoot's daughter talks about in her video. Um, if you look at the map, you will see that there are two lakes right here in the middle of the kingdom of Sarnor. One, two, and they're very big. And then over here is the womb of the world. When it says that it le- uh, there's only three lakes left of the Silver Sea, there's only three lakes in the entire grasslands. It's these two by, the, by Sarnor and this one over here. 
And if this was all an inland sea, I mean, that's huge. That is friggin' so big. It's huge. But again, that it's comparable to the Great Plains where there was a giant inland sea that covered most of it. Um, And I forget whether it was a glacial meltwater lake they're talking about or it was really the actual sea that encroached um, because I'm bad with uh, it's bad knowledge on my part. But check out the Crow Foods Daughter video. It'll set you straight. In any case, Silver Sea is huge. So let me get back to the script here. Thanks once again, Michael Clarfeld, for the map. And you can go to clairdocs.de to get, get one of those maps. All right, so this is pretty important, I think, because it seems that George has taken effort to obscure this information. He never tells us outright that the womb of the world was part of the Silver Sea. Instead, leaving it to us to make this connection... But it really makes sense um, because, again, the womb of the world is the site of the remnants of matriarchy that they have. It's where they revere the mother of mountains and the Dosh Kaleen. And so the idea that that culture exists around the womb of the world, which used to be a part of the Silver Sea, which was the site of another matriarchal culture, kind of makes sense, right? It's, again, it's like... It's a holdover from the older culture of the grasslands that manifests in the Dothraki. And I even wonder about the Dothraki legend of the first rider riding out of the womb of the world. And it's like that might speak to their origins from the Fisher Queens um, and that civilization. Because essentially what the Dothraki are, according to this whole theory that we're talking about today, they're a conglomerate of people that fled the, over the Bones Mountains and the natives of the grasslands. We don't know how that breaks out, but that's what we can extrapolate what would have happened because we know there was a civilization in the grasslands in the oldest of days, and we know that people fled over the Bones in the ancient days, and so we can only presume that they would have then mixed, and that's from where we get the Sarnori and the Dothraki, essentially. Following the fall of the Fisher Queens... The three principal surviving groups, the Cimmeri, the Zokora, and the Gyps, or the Gips, were conquered and assimilated by a group who came to be known as the Sarnori. They called themselves the Tege's Fen, the Tall Men. The legendary founder of Sarnor, the man who took to wife a daughter of the greatest lords and kings of each of these three peoples to unite them and bind them to his will, was named Hushor Amai, the Amazing supposedly born of the last of the Fisher Queens. In a brief shout-out to Arthurian legend, I'll just briefly mention that the concept of the Fisher King, in part, has to do with him being a keeper of the Holy Grail, which is kind of a metaphor for the bloodline of Christ in some understandings of the myth. And so, uh, Christ, of course, was known as the Fisher of Men, and this seems similar to the idea of Hushor Amai as the guardian of the bloodline of the Fisher Queens. Aziz, were you... About yeah, I would jump something. jump in real quick with a little world building note here. Uh, we we pointed we we gave the nod to Lovecraft for Sarnath and the doom that came to Sarnath. Here we need to give a nod to uh, Robert E. Howard because the two of these three races that the principal surviving groups, the Chimerae, the Zakora, and the Gips, are are races from Conan's world. Uh, the Gips, I'm not sure where he got that. But in the in two of the principal ancient races in Hyboria, in the Hyborian age of Conan, which is the main age, uh, are the Chimerians. So he changed, changed the I to a Y. And the Zamora, instead of the Zakora. It's spelled exactly the same, except you change the M to a Q. So 
So that's uh, a little, just a little nod George is doing. You know, George loves those world-building nods to his favorites. And, of course, you, you can't get... Robert E. Howard is the originator of the sword and sorcery genre. So you got to give nods to that guy. <laughs> and so who were those people um, in the story? What function well, were they? Conan himself is a Sumerian. So that's one, one race. Oh. That's particularly important. So he's a descendant of the Cimmerian race. So that's really important. They were, they were like a large... Uh, dark skinned, or sort of dark skinned, like tan, um, dark eyed uh, barbarian race and um, warlike and uh, tribal. And although they may have been something else in the ancient past. And the Zakorans, or Zamorans rather, are, I don't remember, but they're, they're uh, an allusion to the, the Romani. They're kind of like uh, um, the Gitanos. Oh, so maybe the Gitanos, so the Gypsies. Romani or Gypsies, which is not meant to be the most uh, flattering name, but maybe Gips is related to Gypsies somehow. I don't know. Could that be. might be where that, he's doing playing with the language there. That could be. Yeah, totally. And of course, yeah, as you alluded to, uh, Romani is the word you want to use, um, yeah, as yeah. opposed to the older word Gypsy. It's not. It's not the worst, but it's one we're trying not to use. So yeah, it's one of those words um, like context. Like if you, you could say Jewish, but you know, like you could say. Jewish, right. then it's, right. it's it's like well that person's being anti-Semitic, but yeah, it's just all about your the context. Totally, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So uh, good call there, and yeah, thanks for the Conan bit. Um, that's pretty cool. Right, and so mm-hmm. and the the Cimmeri here were the first to work metal, so that kind of makes you think like oh well Conan obviously it's, it's known <laughs> for the swords right, and Conan's pretty metal yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that he is, that he is. Uh, and, of course, we <clears throat> probably don't have to point out the phonetic similarity between whose whore am I and Azor Ahai, because, <laughs> wow, are they similar. So <clears throat> it's tempting to think that whose whore am I, last of the Fisher Queens, could be a garbled memory of a legendary ancestral hero named Azor Ahai. Even though I believe Azor Ahai was originally a bad dude, at some point he obviously became remembered and cast as the hero, so this could be possible. However, all the other flaming sword heroes come from the other side of the Bones Mountains, except for perhaps Eldrick's Shadow Chaser, but that's another story. And nothing else about the Who's Hore Mai story sounds like Azor High or the Bloodstone Emperor. There's no flaming sword, there's no black stone, there's no dark magic, no uh, usurpation or wife stabbing. Uh, so I think it's more probable that the Sarnori language or some words in the Sarnori language come from the great of Empire of the Dawn. Uh, because essentially the some part of the Sarnori ancestors and you know originated over there. The last hero of the Sarnori during their downfall, his name was Mazor Alexi or Alexi, which is another name that kind of sounds like Azor Ahai, but clearly Mazor Alexi lived only 400 years ago. So he's definitely not another name for Azor Ahai. I believe what the message here is that there is a common phonetic link between Sarnor and the Great Empire. And so the name Azor Ahai and Huzor Amai, they sound similar because they are both derived from an older word, or Huzor Amai is simply derived from Azor Ahai, or perhaps Azor Ahai is a title instead of a name. That's an idea that people have had. And so that makes it all the more, um, you know, if it's, if it's the name for the high priest or the king or the chosen one or something, that's the kind of word that might make it in transit over there. And so the heroes like to name themselves after the, the older hero. I mean, that makes tons of sense. 
So if the ancestors of the Sarnori did indeed migrate, um, they may have just simply carried a name, a version of this name with them. What do you think about that? I think that's really cool. I like the idea of it being a title. I've heard that idea before, but haven't really given it a whole lot of thought. Um, it makes kind of kind of makes sense to see uh, to see it that way, given um, like the name of a, a hero or something like that. You know, given like uh, titles given to heroes like that, it, it definitely fits. It's obviously not something we can definitely point to and be like this has to be right, but I think it works. It definitely fits. I like um, the idea of it being a title. Yeah. It's it gives it a new uh, kind of a different perspective. Like if it's a title, then like it doesn't have to just be one person, which I find a lot of people falling in the trap of Lightbringer being like one person or a sword or a single thing. I feel like if it's a title, it could include a lot more people. I don't know. It definitely fits the idea that John and Danny are both Azora High Reborn. Right. Like it, I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, it so. helps with that one, <laughs> and I like that one a lot. I just nope. got. Um, uh, I, I just checked my Facebook notifications and saw that in uh, the history of Westeros group, one of our listeners, Tracy McMillan, is watching this stream, and she made a really interesting suggestion, which is that kinslaying is taboo all over Westeros in multiple cultures. It's taboo amongst the Ironborn or spilling blood in, or in, in some form or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's taboo in a lot of different cultures. And she suggests that maybe the idea, the taboo against kinslaying originated with the Bloodstone Emperor killing the Amethyst Empress and spread all over uh, in, and to take root in these new new cultures. Which is, That's a great idea. Oh, yeah. It is a, yeah, that's a good idea. That's actually one that, that has been around a little bit. That's Okay, cool. It, well, it's an obvious idea that's not obvious, but it does suggest itself when you think about it. Um, yeah, it's one like, of those ones. Once you hit it, it's like, oh yeah, that works really well. But like, if you well, the didn't long think of it, night yeah. was was caused by kinslaying. Okay, well, let's not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good. And, point. and furthermore, the Dothraki also um, show a very strong aversion to Miriam's door and the shadow binding and the tent of dancing shadows and blood magic. And they're like, it's an abomination. It's an abomination. Like, where does that belief come from? That also could be good point. The same idea, like uh, that's them remembering the Bloodstone Emperor uh, doing necromancy and shit. They're like, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we fled. The, we fled over the mountains because of that. Like we don't do that. <laughs> okay, so the question is, was it the ancestors of the Sarnori that migrated, or is it one of the people? that assimilated into the Sarnori culture. I mean, it's really, I guess, a question of semantics. But like I said, it's this big stew pot of locals and immigrants. And it has a while to brew together before the Sarnori emerge. So they seem to be the sum of both the, the fugitives from the Great Empire and the people who live there. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. So it's ambiguous as to whether or not um, the Sarnori, like, okay, so who's Hor Amai? He conquered these three people like he assimilated it doesn't say who he was though like the last son of the fisher queens i guess but that to me sounds like the kind of thing you claim to claim legitimacy like danny talks about putting on their floppy ears like oh well the lady of marine must be a lady of old geese she must look like that and so she's got to don her floppy ears and wear the giscari garb in order to have the mantle of ruling. So you can almost see, like, who's or am I? Be like, I am the last son of the Fisher Queens. You know, kind of like Fagon being like, I am the son of Rhaegar. Make me king, you know? 
It's, it smells similar to me. So it, it's unclear whether or not... Um, I mean, Husor Amai himself could have been somebody from the Great Empire of the Dawn who crossed the mountains and then, like, was the guy that conquered and, and knitted the Sarnori together within, within years of getting there. Uh, but, you know, it's just it's room to speculate, so we don't know. What we do know is that the Sarnori fought in the wars between Valeria and Gis. And the last of those was recorded as being 5,000 years ago. And that's... Sarnor has already been around at that point. So that means that Sarnor probably arose pretty soon after the Long Night. They, they seem to have been the first civilization that arose after this disaster and after the fall of the Fisher Queens. And thus the timing of the conquest and the, the creation of Sarnor sort of lines up with that exodus from the Great Empire of the Dawn, which would have been going on right after the Long Night. So there's a nice little continuity, like during the Long Night, people flee. Sometime not too long after that, Sarnor arises with traces of, of Great Empire of the Dawn language with these names. Um, I got a couple super chats. Let's see. Thanks, guys, for reminding me. Um, Princess Scanius says, I wonder if one could compare the Sarnori to the Scythians. Definitely. Since the Scythians expanded westward, dislodged the actual historical Sumerians from power on the Pontic Steppe. That's interesting because the Scythians were horse were, peoples, like yeah. the Mongols or something. Okay. They were proto, yeah, they were kind of proto-Mongols, proto-Tartars or whatever. I didn't realize the Sumerians were historical, though. That's neat, which, which makes sense because Robert E. Howard mostly used historical races and ethnicities with very slight spelling changes and it's interesting why because he was a, a, a poor kid living in texas uh, in a t- city of 2,000 people in the 30s and so he, he literally couldn't afford encyclopedias and couldn't get them from the local library so he just took real places and changed the name slightly <laughs> it worked it did and those, those, those impacts are still being felt now in fantasy because people like to, like to give homages to him, and homages to him means homages to those things that he did. So concerning the peoples who were united by the amazing one himself, who's or am I, uh, a couple of things seem relevant here. The Saimeri were supposedly the first to work iron, as I just mentioned, although the Roinar also claimed this title. Azorahai was seemingly a smith as he heated, hammered, and folded the steel of Lightbringer the sword, which implies the Great Empire of the Dawn may have had some knowledge of metalworking as well, and that seems likely. I've laid out the case in the previous essays that the Valerians were in always, I guess I should say we have, laid out in previous essays that the Valerians were in always heirs to the magic of the Great Empire, and, you know, of course, the Great Empire had control of dragons, and they had the sorcery needed to make fused stone, and their emperors appear holding swords of pale fire, and all of that makes it likely that the Great Empire not only knew how to work steel, but probably knew the secrets of making steel with dragon flame and sorcery in a forerunner of Valerian steel. Are you with me here, Aziz? I mean, it's likely the Great Empire of the Dawn knew how to make steel, right? I mean, that's not exactly oh, yeah. controversial. I don't, they wouldn't have been a very great empire if they could do that. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's an out, very outside chance. I mean, you got the only one real-world parallel I can think of with a fairly advanced ancient civilization that did have metalworking as the uh is the mexica uh or the aztecs etc but they were so advanced in so many other ways it just wasn't they just didn't need metalworking and it wasn't all that yeah so yeah it seems super likely that they could do that all right yeah i didn't think that exactly would be controversial so um yeah. <laughs> now the zokora meanwhile 
They had brown skin and pale hair. And here we get back into the talk of what the Great Empire might have looked like. So the Zokora, they've got brown skin, pale hair, they're long of limb, and they have eyes that are something other than black. Um, it's, it's the way that the paragraph is worded basically eliminates the possibility that they have black eyes without telling you what color eyes they have. But just picture them. These are tall people with pale hair, but they've got brown skin instead of light valerian skin. So I think that this is essentially how the gemstone emperors, or some of them at least, might have looked. Um, because the Dothraki, who are fellow potential fugitives from the Great Empire, they also have medium brown or bronze, quote-unquote, skin tones, and they're also fairly tall. And then we also go back to the Isle of Lang, who are a descendant of the Great Empire of the Dawn, and they are very tall. They have black hair, uh, yeah, black hair, and they're described as having teak-colored skin, which is basically another way of saying medium brown, golden, or sort of bronze-colored skin. And the Lengi are also very, very tall, like the Saranori. They've also got black hair like the Saranori. The only difference, really, um, between the Saranori and the Lengi, um, as far as just the basic coloring, is the eye color. Um, the, the, black, the Saranori have black eyes, Lengi have golden eyes, although that's probably a result of the Lengi having interbred with the old ones, who seem to be kind of like elves of some kind, and that's definitely another topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> But it's yeah. possible. I, I have wondered about that Sarnori Lengi connection. What do you think? Is that far fetched or is that is that possible? It seems like he kept that in mind when he was placing these different races and giving their characteristics. He was keeping like neighboring peoples would have some sort of overlapping characteristics. Like either like for example with the Sarnori, you mentioned their their skin tone is their height is different than the Roinar, but the skin tone sounds familiar to the Roinar and some of the other things. So you've got these sort of, you could see how it would work. It's not, it's not just like he's randomly tossing cultures here and there and giving them traits. He's, he's definitely making it. He designed it with their, all their neighbors in mind. It's, they weren't imagined in a vacuum, in other words. So lots of moving pieces, and he keeps track of them really well. No, that's, that's actually a really good meta point, is that like, this is clearly designed with some amount of intention. He's telling you these three people combined, and then you can see the, the Sarnori looks in these different three peoples, the Cimmerian, the Zokora, and the Gips. And that's kind of what this paragraph is telling you in the world of Ice and Fire. They're like, well, the Sarnori were tall, like the Zokora, but they had black eyes, like the uh, Cimmeri. And so it's sort of giving you that whole... Anyways, you get the point. So yeah. we've mentioned uh, the similarities in eye, skin, and hair color and height between the Sarnori and the Dothraki. And it's probably also worth noting that both cultures were very good with horses, just in different ways. The Sarnori have their deadly scythe chariots, and that requires very advanced horsemanship, breeding, and training, and also very strong horses. Indeed, we're told that they use specific breeds for specific pur purposes— Black mares for their cavalry and blood-red horses trained to work in teams to pull the scythe chariots. The Dothraki were nomadic, unlike Sarnor, which accounts for their different use of horses, but there may well have been some ancient transference of culture, knowledge, and horse flesh, even if they were generally thought of as rivals. And of course, there could be a common ancestry. 
The Dothraki probably did not bring their horses with them from the east because, of course, the Jogosnai only have zorses. Um, so the horses seem to have been found in the grasslands. So given their similar coloring and their similar horse culture, it's almost impossible not to conclude that the Saranori and the Dothraki do indeed share some amount of common ancestry. Um, that common ancestor is probably on the west side of the mountains, I would say. One culture became urbanized, whilst the other remained nomadic, but it's probably not a coincidence that we get these two similar-looking horse peoples living right next to one another. Now, the Sarnori men and women... Actually, let me stop and ask your opinion on that one, Aziz. Yeah, part of the horse skills uh, is, is just because they're all on these giant steps, but yeah, certainly there's, there, you're, you're right that there are some just straight-up physical similarities, and that is very telling. Uh, you've got the like you said, the eye skin and hair color and, and height, which is, yeah, like that is a huge uh, clue right there by itself. And then you've got, and of course they would develop somewhat similarly given the terrain, they're living in the same kind of geographical climate and all that, uh, which those things, as we know, absolutely play a role in how civilizations develop. Obviously, like the the cultural taboos and traditions and things absolutely are born in large part because of you know the geography and climate so that's they would have some similarities based on their common uh terrain you know upbringing based on that but also because they live near each other and because the dothraki are sort of a quote-unquote new people uh, that means that they had to have come from other peoples and Obviously, the the nearby ones make the most sense. So they do kind of seem like a combination of the Jogos Nai and the Sarnori. You know, like that is the most basic ethnic mix we could probably pin down. Essentially, it's, it's yeah. More complicated than that, but I think that's a good basic starting point. The high level and view, I, and I think you can compare the relationship between the Sarnori and Dothraki to that of the Jogos Nai and the Yitish, and, uh, because mm. the Jogos Nai are described as having yellow skin, and they're short. And obviously, yellow skin is an, uh, is an allusion to Asian skin. And we see mm. a picture of a Yitish man, and he's very short, and he's obviously Asian-looking. So that tells you the Yitish and the Jogos Nai share a common ancestor, and yet mm-hmm. they are fierce rivals. And one of them is an urban civilization, and the other is a nomadic civilization. So it's the exact same thing that I'm proposing, is that the Sarnori and Dothraki, common ancestor, one of them is urbanized, one of them is not. They do war on each other. They're really long-lost cousins. So and they kind of breeding together it's this we see this sort of thing in the real world obviously when two cultures exist near each other they blend uh a good example is um something i'm personally familiar with is thailand which um you have a combination of 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 a wide variety of skin tones in in thailand but it's it's common to see fairly dark skin as well as fairly light skin but the dark skin a lot of that is from western influence thailand is next to india and the names are very Indian sounding. These long, hard to say names that don't really sound Japanese or Chinese or Korean. They don't sound like those at all. But uh, they have that f- similar physical feature. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of like a, 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 a term you're familiar with from re- listening to Dan Carlin is cultural estuary, where it's like an area where two different cultures kind of come together and it forms sort of its own new culture. And over time, that might become completely distinct and separate. Um, an estuary being in water, turn like. Um, when salt water and fresh water meet, that would be an estuary. And sometimes you have new species that form in that sort of hybrid zone. 
And you can also look at the, the two religions, Hinduism and Buddhism in that area, and everywhere they came together, that was another you know, cultural estuary, and that was a conveyor of ideas and names and all that stuff. Um, so Very true. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I can't speak um, authoritatively with any specifics, but I've read enough to know that that's, that's a really strong influence, is the movements of Hinduism and Buddhism all throughout the East there, in that sort of region between India to Indonesia up to China. So... Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah. uh, very cool that George is sort of, you know, re- reproducing those kind of movements as much as he can um, in his little world building that he's doing. So even though he is a gardener and he doesn't have the kind of pre-planned world building that Tolkien has, when he does go and backfill it, he tries to make it, uh, you know, realistic. So Oh, hey, actually, we do have a, a, an even uh, maybe even even better parallel here. We talked about it earlier. The Chinese and the Mongolians. You had... After Genghis Khan's time, you had distinct splits in Mongolian society where you had some kind of conservatives that were like, no, we got to keep to be who we are. You got to stay on the steps. But so many Mongols were like, no, these Chinese cities are nice and it's, it's so nice to live here. You got your silks and your great foods and your evening entertainments and all yeah, that. And and that. Right, I, so what, the, what they would do, the Mongols, when they came to power in the Chinese dynasties, is they would build gardens in the middle of the cities, very like a godswood, that they could run around with their horses and, and sort of retain a little kernel of nomadic culture in the city. It was very much a, a struggle. That they yeah. that they had, so that was it's just too tempting. Yeah, it's just too tempting to come. It was like you, you want to go live hard on the steps and just like the live under the conditions that created this incredibly violent and aggressive and powerful race. Then, or do you want to live in this nice city where there's delicious food on every street corner and beautiful women and men everywhere? <laughs> just like yeah, well, <laughs> you could see why they they went to the easier route over time. <laughs> I choose women. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I've been talking about this book and I want to share it with you because it's a really great read. It's called Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. And it really fills out some of the Dan Carlin stuff because this is based on the unearthing of um, these new... Uh, documents that Dan Carlin was talking about in his thing, the, the, the Secret History... Yeah, as uh, as what it's called. So yeah. this this is like a little more of a scholarly deep dive into that, um, and it represents some of the cross checking of that information with other information. So Aziz, you would you would love this. Uh, it's not that long of a read. It's really interesting. It focuses, cool, yeah. as you can see from the byline and the making of the modern world. It really focuses on showing how the Mongol activities spiraled off into every place that they touched and shaped, literally shaped the modern world. So um, that's, it's a great book, and I just wanted to, wanted to pop it up there so you can see it and go find it if you're into that kind of thing. Thank you. Diaspora, diaspora, diaspora. All right, so the Sarnori men and women are said to have had the custom of making war together with the women twice mentioned as chariot drivers, Husor Amai's Saimeri wife supposedly made his armor, which we are later told is in fact steel. So even though we have transitioned from female rulers, the Fisher Queens, to male rulers in the High Kings and Lesser Kings of Sarnor, we still see a remnant of some kind of gender equality and gender role flexibility. This is too broad of a concept to be specifically associated with the Great Empire, but it does fit in with the general narrative of shift from matriarchal societies to patriarchal ones, as I was talking about earlier. And it's worthy of note, as George seems to be depicting this phenomenon across large parts of the world. 
On a cosmic level, it all goes back to the murder of the moon goddess, the ultimate usurpation of female power. So there's a nice bit of symmetry here with the beginning and end of the story of the grasslands. While the fisher queens, quote, ruled from a floating palace that made its way endlessly around its shores, today, the, quote, cows drive their great herds of horses and goats endlessly around their sea, fighting one another when they meet and occasionally moving beyond their borders of their own lands for slaves and plunder. So we used to have wise and benevolent female rulers traveling in actual sea, and now we have traveling bands of violent male killers in a great grass sea. Again, illustrating this shift towards patriarchy and violent conquest, uh, but using the same sort of imagery. So pretty cool. Lastly, concerning Sarnor, it should be noted that they are some of the most accomplished seafarers and travelers in history. The Great Empire of the Dawn conquered Lang by sea, and if they reached Westeros in any meaningful capacity, meaning more than just a handful of dragon riders flying on dragonback, then it would surely have been a maritime power as well, or would have had to have been to reach Westeros. And it's likely they were in any case, simply because of their size and power. Here's a quote about the travels of the Sarnori. Sarnori traders traveled to Valyria and Yiti, to Leng and Ashai. Sarnori ships sailed the Shivering Sea to Ib and far Mosavi. Sarnori kings warred against the Kothi and the old empire of Geese, and led many a foray against the bands of nomadic horsemen who roamed the steppes to their east. That's pretty extensive travel, and they seem to have had an interest in lands formerly under the rule of the Great Empire. It's really too bad about the burning of the Great Library at Alexandria, I mean, Salash, the city of scholars, <laughs> or else I might not have had to write this essay at all. <laughs> so to sort of sum up our findings here, a lot of people seem to have fled the collapse of the Great Empire of the Dawn by going west over the Bones Mountains. Thus, both genetics and culture from the various tribes of man that comprised the great empire spread out all through Essos, to Valeria, to Carth, to the peoples of the grasslands, such as the Sarnori and the Dothraki. There's also the question of the Andals, who are said to have possibly arisen in the grasslands south of the Silver Sea, because, hey, they've got that Hugor Hill guy, and he bears some of the hallmarks of the Azor Ahai mythology, and, oh, by the way, Hugor, Huzor. Hmm. They sound very similar. The uh, Andals also have that starry sept. They've got a heavy astronomical component to their theology in general. Perhaps another day we can explore that possibility. But for now, I hope you've enjoyed this essay, and I will see you all soon with more mythical astronomy and between two weirdos. So there you go. Thank you, thank you. Hooray, hooray. We made it. And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> so it's not um there's really nothing super groundbreaking in the way that like realizing the dragon lords came to westeros is like having that realization totally changes the game it makes azor high and the last hero and dragon steel start to make sense this is not quite like that but it is interesting because it just shows how much thought that George has put into the world building. And it shows you that the Great Empire of the Dawn really was important. It really, just like Genghis Khan and the shaping of the modern world, the Great Empire of the Dawn really did shape the world that came after it. Um, so I just think that's pretty interesting. And as you can see, there's, there's a fair amount to dig into here when you start looking at this stuff. And uh, yeah, Harrison Grand Williams was talking about the who's whore, who gore, connection that's definitely an old one harrison um from way back in the days 
of the, I can't claim credit for that, actually. I, I don't even know who realized that first, but it's a pretty obvious one. Aziz, what do you think about that? Hugo Hill, Who's Whore Am I? Because I know you noticed the Who's Whore Am I thing when you yeah. first read The World of Ice and Fire, and you, were in, you and Ashe were pretty jazzed about that. Yeah, Huzor, Hugor is just a, just a, I mean, those are cousins, yeah. That's really, like, a, just a matter of, like, certain letters not existing in a certain culture. Like, Alexander is pronounced Iskander in, in the East because of all the cities that Alexander the Great found. He, he made, like, you mentioned the Library of Alexandria, so I thought of that. He founded, like, 70 Alexandrias, but they're all, a lot of them are pronounced vastly differently because local, a lot of local cultures didn't have the letter X, for example, so they just had to do something else. So, yeah, so George is maybe borrowing that concept and just slightly <laughs> on, wait, changing wait, wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. I have a rare disease which prevents me from pronouncing the X in Alexandria. It's a Alexandria. 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 <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. But uh, um, so the, yeah, so that's about it, though. Yeah, it, it, it could, well, so it could definitely I, pass. It could definitely work. The thing I notice about Hugor's myth is that he's remembered as slaying the Swan Maidens. And that, that's a little bit Nissa Nissa-like because Nissa Nissa occasionally manifests as a mermaid, um, which I, I tra- we translate as green sea symbolism. But, um, of course, Amanda's documented that even more than I have. Uh, Nissa Nissa has a lot of mermaid symbolism and many Nissa Nissa figures. And so uh, the idea of who's whore am I uh, killing the swan maidens is interesting. He also had a crown that was made of seven stars pulled down from heaven. So awesome. that's that's pretty good. It's pretty on the nose. We were pulling stars down from heaven in order for somebody to gain power and authority. That's very Fire of the Gods, Bloodstone Emperor-like. Um, so Hugor Hill is a better match for like a, a drift of Azor High. But the thing is that if Hugor Hill is is a is a you know game of telephone version of the Azor High myth then it would have come through the, the path that we just traced out, over the mountains, into the grasslands, where we find out that the Andals may have arisen too. And so they may have taken that who's or am I title or myth, and now we've got Hugo Hill. So it does make sense. Right on. I liked it. Hmm. All right. Well, so I guess I will open it up to... Last questions from the chat before we get on out of here, or last comments by either of my guests here. I I don't think I have any more comments. Let's see if there's any questions. I have to run in a minute, but I can definitely hang on for a question or two. Well, so when I originally did the Great Empire of the Dawn essay on uh, Westeros.org, I followed it up with two essays called Children of the Dawn. And the first one was about Valeria and a shy and the, and the cult of starry wisdom and basically i was saying that valeria descends from you know from a shy and, and we were highlighting all the magical links that we just talked about uh, and then i also talked about how quaith and marwin both seem to be members of the cult of starry wisdom and they're both using glass candles um, and so i said well these are all children of of the great empire of the dawn in that sense and then the second essay I did was the very, very rough draft version of like some of the material that's in what we just read, the, some of the original Sarnori and Jogos Nye stuff. And I always planned on doing one more, which was primarily based on the Andals, 
because the Andals, not only do we have this Hugor Hill connection, we've also got the entire mythology of the Seven, which is loaded with starry and celestial stuff. And I've even wondered if it's not a coincidence that we find the cult of starry wisdom alive at Old Town, right under the thumb of the starry, you know, the starry sept and all of that. And then we've got a high up in the Citadel, Marwyn, who seems to be a starry wisdom cultist. And you just wonder, like, how many high septons have been starry wisdom cultists? You know, you start getting conspiratorial with that. Like, ooh, they, they're, the inside of their starry sept is all black and they use the candles to simulate the stars. Like, what are they going for here exactly? <laughs> yeah, you wonder what their awareness of it is. Like, it's right there uh, in their in their ports, right there on the, the temples, right there at the docks. So, you know, they're some of them have bound to have interacted with it, if not, like you say, are involved heavily. Hmm. Yeah, so there you go. So I guess <laughs> that's a way of saying that, Aziz, maybe in the future we can collaborate, because um, I haven't even done this research yet, but maybe you and I can put our heads together and take a look at the Andals in Old Town and see what we can uh, glean, do another Great Empire episode. I think the people would be happy. It sounds good. Andals, Andals, Vandals. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of uh, people seem to be hungry for more meaning beside behind the history of the Andals lately. The people have been sniffing at that. So it'd be fun yeah. to maybe throw a hat in the ring about what we think about the history of the Andals. Definitely have some thoughts, starting with how their culture, how so many of their cultural ideals are the direct opposite of Valyrian cultural ideals. I think that's super interesting. Hmm. I'm inviting myself also. The knights, ensla- the knights are supposed to protect the weak, right? And the Valyrians enslave the weak. Uh, yeah. Um, incest. Incest is a taboo. Uh, there's more. I'll have to sit down and think about it again. But yeah, there's a lot of these like very polar opposite cultural beliefs between Andals and Valyrians. That'll be one topic among many we can delve into. And here I'm now, I've had a request for the link to the text of this essay. It is published... It's in the description of the video. I'll have it linked to the front page sometime later today. And I am not a theory of the Andals being in Westeros before the long night. I think that's hogwash and rubbish. And I would love a chance to address that theory at some point. Maybe that maybe we'll make that part of it, uh, too. That but. seems like it would fit in. Yep. Not hogwash is in it's a bad theory, just I don't think it's true. I think it's an interesting theory, and it's worth thinking about. That's what I'll say. Um, so, And I know it's uh, been catching on lately, so there you go. Uh, there we go, guys. So I think, that's, I think that'll do it. Um, Aziz, you already gave the rundown of what you are doing on your channel, but just real quickly, um, that Gagasos thing sounds fabulous. Mm-hmm. I can't that's wait to hear it. Uh, so and it's very much uh, touching on some of the topics that we talked about as far as the fallout of, of places like Valyria and the Great Empire of the Dawn. So that's I think cool. We're gonna, I think we're going to record it on Thursday because uh, we have our live stream Tuesday. We've got to prepare for that a little more and then uh, editing that, posting it up. And then, yeah, recording Gagas is probably Thursday, so we'll have it up um, a few days after. So, yeah. And then uh, other than that, we're doing our live streams and... We're, it looks like we're going to be doing uh, Bloodraven uh, Fleet 3 next. We put it up for a vote, um, which because we have a couple of series that are in progress, so I thought I'd turn it over to people to see what they wanted us to do next. That seems to be the, uh, the winner, so we'll be working on that as well. And, of course, we're doing a Dance of the Dragons double pod with uh, Radio Westeros, which is proving to 
be just the biggest topic. Gosh, Dance of Dragons is just insane with all its parallels to A Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, geez. And, uh, yeah. Just as a story itself. The farther we go into it, the more it's just, geez, this is deep. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about that. And um, cool. as we mentioned, I will be on History of Westeros on Tuesday at Boom. 6 Eastern. Mm-hmm. We'll be talking about Alyssa Farman and the Sun Chaser and all that fun stuff. Um, so look forward to that. And tomorrow, I am once again recording with Beefish and Emmett for Not a Cast. They oh, are doing cool. the Danny Horsehart eating chapter, which is eat also the, the one heart. where she eat the heart. <laughs> and it's also the one where she dips herself in the womb of the world, and the moon is shattering and reforming on the surface. And then, oh by the way, they kill Viserys at the end. So there is <laughs> so I mean, like almost every single one of my theories is touched upon in this chapter. So I'm I'm, I'm going to have to really constrain myself. I'm like. Otherwise, it's going to be like, I'm just going to blow them away with four hours of nonsense. So, uh, yeah, you can look forward to that. Hopefully it'll go well. I'm sure it will. I've also, the next Weirwood Compendium is being written, and that will be uh, the stallion that mounts the world. We'll continue the horse green seer symbolism that we did last time, and we're going to talk about Sleipnir and Odin and Danny and Bran. We're going to we're gonna take the Danny green seer and the Bran green seer stuff, and we're going to, we're going to, go like this we're going to show you how they get together way up in the stars and project some really awesome stuff for the end game of a song of ice and fire hashtag astro brand hashtag where's ravenous reader when you need her so there you go guys thanks for tuning in on this first podcast of 2019 look forward to bringing you many good live streams and essays and things this year and oh i always do this to you sanry i'm so sorry it's okay it's the worst. So your calendar is out. It is sold out. It is sold out. It is in hot hands, but I just read that you are taking orders for the next batch and you're looking for 10 or 12 more orders to complete that. Is that, is that what I read? Yeah. I I basically need that much to be able to afford to order a batch of them. So that way, um, because I don't have any extra money right now. (laughs) Otherwise I just go ahead and get another batch, but anybody who wants one, um, I'm going to set it up on my store tonight and you'll have, um, you have to prepay for it, obviously. And then I'll ship it to you as soon as it gets here. And everybody else should have gotten theirs um, by, I think, like the second, the latest ones arrived. But yeah, Aziz got one. I got mine. Yeah. A lot of people in the chat got one um, that I see right now. Huntress of Wolfswood got one, I believe. Um, But yeah, so. And uh, also uh, San Rixian, um, let's see here. I think. I think I'm seeing people in the chat say that we might have some new entries for the 2020 calendar oh, that you've wow, created yeah. here today. Yeah, um, the next the next big project is getting the stickers done for um, you and your patrons, and getting the order forms up for the t-shirts for people we owe t-shirts for. And then I'll be doing an inkthology and a coloring book, which I know you guys have heard about before, and I'm super excited for it. It's just a matter of like having time to put it together, but I've got most of it all set up. So look forward to that soon. Cool. So guys, I will just remind you, you know, I've got a Patreon, which you guys give to every month and that funds me and keeps the show going. San Rixian does not have a Patreon. San Rixian makes money by selling stuff on her website. So if you don't have her t-shirts, if you don't have her prints, but you enjoy her art that she's doing here on the show, a great way to express that gratitude 
is to order yourself a fine looking t-shirt. It's like kind of easy to do, to be honest. It's, it's really, I shouldn't be having to twist your arm on this one here, you know? So order yourself some prints from sandrixing.com, show her some love. And uh, that you can also think about that as saying thank you for the great work that she does here on the show. So thank you. And I will say there's uh, codes for both of you guys that I have for my shop, um, LML and also HOW for LML and History of Westeros. Very original, I know, but those both get you 15% off. So everybody in um, all the myth heads and everybody, anybody sees this video is welcome to use that, of course. And also, yeah, as Jinx and other people are speaking up, the T-shirts are very high quality. They're fashion fit and they, they, uh, they're snazzy and they're, the, the print quality is very good. And then those, the actual physical prints, if you order those, you will be blown away. They are like, I don't know where you got these done, Sanry, but they oh. are very impressive. I'm a graphic designer too. I'm a snob about print quality and pixel quality and resolution, all that shit. I was blown away when you sent me my batch of prints. So guys, yeah. order these things, put them in a frame. They're beautiful. So, Thank you. That's the highest compliment I could receive. So, um, yeah, it's, it's the truth. It's the I truth. also have a PayPal if you just want to straight up give me a tip. It's just Sanrixian or it's MalloryDorn at gmail.com. I always appreciate that, but I don't like to promote that on your streams, you know? Yeah, absolutely, guys. Spread the love. Like <laughs> I said, because it's not a matter, it's just a matter of like, if, if you want, you know, mythical astronomy around, you give to mythical astronomy. And then I, I keep coming back with new episodes. You want, you want more history of Westeros? You throw him some cash and he keeps doing it. So yeah, if you want more Sanrixian, you want to make sure that she's here and available to draw. Give her a tip. Give her some love. Order some shirts. So there it is, guys. Thank thanks you. for thanks for uh, coming, everyone. Thanks, uh, Aziz, for clearing your schedule for me for uh, these three and a half hours that you've been here. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. It's been great. You, great chat. I hope you hope you enjoyed yourself, and hopefully they'll get that um, long night series um, up and running. You know, as soon as I feel like, as soon as the show's over, they'll start pumping that one. We'll get a lot of buzz for that. And then I think people will be all the more interested in the Great Empire of the Dawn Theory. And at that point, I think we'll probably come back and revisit all this stuff. Um, hopefully hopefully uh, they'll draw from some of this and we'll get some Dragon Lords in the Long Night series from the East. I'm, I'm so looking forward to like This is another thing to look forward to in the Winds of Winter. Like, he's got to drop a couple of nuggets, even if it's just a couple of lines. He could do a lot with just a couple of lines in terms of expanding these theories because there's so many theories so many ideas so many extrapolations uh little add-ons could do a lot to widen our picture or narrow things down or both so yeah come on george give us just all he needs to do is give us a little bit and like we said we're this is like i said at the beginning of this live stream we do expect some of this to happen because delving into danny's origins is is like just like we're delving into john's origin like this has Mm got to some of this is coming out so I, i do think that Melisandre's Mel, uh, Ashai chapter, flashback, whatever. Not Ashai chapter, but flashbacks will... Yeah, we're getting stuff. I mean, <laughs> please, stuff. please tell me who complains if we've got some Asian people with Targaryen hair riding fucking dragons in the show. I don't think that's going to disappoint anyone. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing like crouching tiger leaps off of dragon back. Be like, whoa! Oh, that would be cool. That's probably crouching. going too far, but... I'm saying there's cool, there's good potential. There's all kinds of cool Eastern. I mean, you talk about, I mean, 
these shows are costume porn, right? I mean, that's like uh-huh. 50% of all these shows is costume porn. So you want to tell me you can't have some fun getting into the stuff from the East uh, and creating some Eastern Dragon Lords? I mean, come on, guys. That that sounds That'd like a weird. I don't I, see why I, they wouldn't do that. Anyways, there you go. Thanks, everyone. Let's call it a wrap, and I will see you next week. Not sure what it'll be, but it'll be something. And I expect to see you all on Tuesday, hopefully, 6 Eastern on the History of Westeros channel. So Yes, please join us. We'll have good times. Thanks again. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Hey, guys. Here are a couple of bits from the stream, which I clipped out and uh, saved to the end because I thought you might be interested in some of them, but they didn't exactly fit in. So here you go. So there's a super chat uh, coming from Marvin the Martian, who I have to... Or Marvin Martin. <laughs> but he's got a <laughs> Marvin the Martian icon, so... I claim this planet for Mars. There you go. <laughs> uh, undying and unnatural life-stealing. A Song of Ice and Fire seems to be heading towards a yin-yang natural balance ending. Seems a little too easy and cliche. You think there is a twist to that coming, and if so, what it might be? Well, I would say that... Um, it doesn't have to be cliche. George Martin is great at doing cliche things like the hidden prince, you know, like Jon Snow, but then just doing or the dispossessed heiress like Danny, uh, but then making it realistic. I mean, that's what he's good at. So he definitely can pull that off. And also, like, what kind of ungodly acts is it going to take to end magic or to cancel out the others or to shut down the weirwood net? I mean, these these are unbelievable things if that's the way it's going. Like we've talked yeah. about. Um, you know, ha- shutting down the weirwood net a lot because of like Bran's cauldron, Bl- Bran the Blessed, who has to go inside the cauldron that raises the dead and blow it up from the inside so that it can't keep raising the dead. Uh, that's crazy. So, yeah, that's that's like stepstone blowing up the stepstones or flooding the neck like level magic. If if not even bigger. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's totally that's as high as I, high magic gets. <laughs> I think that is a really good chance that that is what Bran's destiny is, is that he's going to literally shut down the Weirwood Net, which would be a sacrificial, uh, destructive act at the same time. But yeah, so I mean, if there's a no magic ending, it's going to be something really fantastic like that. And before that, we're going to get a bunch of magic. But, but the twist could be that things aren't resolved and all we do is the same thing that they did at the last long night, which is like end the long night and kick the can down the road. But knowing that the others are coming back one day, I mean that could be the twist too. So, hey, but know. it's a really long kick down the road, right? Like, hey, yeah. eight thousand years. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good healthy kick. Yeah, so <laughs> it's a very solid kick. Right, like Frodo destroyed the ring. Exactly. Like that's 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 a very good and obvious analogy that I should have thought of, but totally. So you know, Bran Stark would be dead if he did that. This would be Bran sacrificing himself. Flying into the sun, if you will. Bran uh, would be the ring itself, not Frodo in this case. That's right, right. That's right. Or think about Gollum to destroy the ring. He had to literally jump in with it. Uh, Are you saying Bran is like Gollum? Gollum. (laughs) Gollum. (laughs) And I've got some super chats. So uh, Marvin Martin liked my Martian voice, it looks like. He says, is the Maester conspiracy analogous to tensions between science and religion or showing that even academia and science institutions are vulnerable to power problems in human nature? That's probably too big of a question to dive into right now, Marvin, I have to say. Um, I, I do think that science uh, is 
uh, like all, everything Martin does about uh, fire of the gods and like handling great power and you know the responsibility that comes with that can be you know sort of transferred onto science. I mean that's our fire of the gods, chemistry, the ability to make nuclear bombs, diseases, to heal the sick. This is our fire of the gods that we're being tested with. So that's always like one of those great responsibility things. Um, and that's how I think, I do think Martin is thinking about that when he writes about Lightbringer and this horrible knowledge that can barely, probably shouldn't be possessed. I do think he's thinking about things like nuclear bombs and that technology. Give me some thoughts, Aziz, while I queue up um, some music. And actually, I am going to go grab some pretzels, dude, because I'm dying. I didn't have a chance to eat very much. Uh, so yeah, the, amuse the people, Sanri and Aziz. Give me like three minutes here. You got it. Um, yeah, so feel, feel free to also feel free to tell everybody, I guess, as he's like what you're doing, what you're up to and, you know, what you got coming. OK, that's a good good idea. We'll start with that. Um, knock that out. So, yeah, like I've mentioned, I think early in the episode, I've just finished writing an episode on Gagasos, which is the former city in the Basilisk Isles on the Isle of Tears that was sort of the heir to Valyrian blood magic after the doom. They were doing lots of experiments on people and creatures and on people and creatures. And it was a really powerful city with slaves and sorcery. And I, I get to talk about fun things like imagine this, the great slaver dynasties of slavers Bay, and then imagine those same people with blood magic on their side. And that's what you had at Cagasos. And so we get into stuff about, um, chimeras and sphinxes and other really creepy unusual stuff regarding magic and um, the origin of the targaryens and how they may be how this idea relates to their part dragonness the idea of combining beasts and people really flies with that and then we get to talk about how that might apply to the others as well you've got half human children sired by the others and I think sired by the others is just a misnomer because from what we've what, from what we can gather, they're not having they're not having sex. They're not procreating in that sense. So it might be that they're doing a similar kind of magic to alter babies or humans to make them into others. Not unlike what the blood mages are doing to make or did to make people into part dragon or whatever they did. Nice. So, so you've got these cool ice and fire parallels with uh, magic infecting hu- or impacting humans. And then there's lots of other stuff about Gagasta just seems like it'd be the most amazing place for like a role-playing campaign because you've got <laughs> the doom has just happened. So you've got the city kind of rising and becoming an independent power. It was called the 10th Free City for a while. And you've got blood mages who are looking for samples of crazy different species just imagine an adventuring party that's goes to a blood mage and is like hey i'll give you this much money if you go to sothorios and find me a, a wyvern egg and a a brindled man like a, a living brindled man and a couple of emerald i don't know just a just you name it there's a million different creatures and creepy things down in there so the the quests kind of write themselves <laughs> so i just got fascinated with all those ideas and and uh, just kind of went off writing about it so that's really fun so that and of course uh digging deep into fire and blood which which happened in this in this episode as well we got to talk about the the possible idea that uh whatever's going on in victorian's arm and and connecting it to maybe connecting it to array a targaryen and 
and uh, all that stuff. So oh, it's jo- a big rabbit hole. <laughs> Jojo Lady Dane's going to like that. Oh, yeah, she will. <laughs> yeah. Cool idea. I noticed that uh, one new little thing I noticed about that is that it's it, two different suggestions. One is the idea that uh, you do have maggots eating eating infected flesh. Uh, so that's a thing um, in the um, real world and in Westeros and in true, Estos. True. So, so if you have these worms eating away infected flesh, it's kind of, you can kind of see that parallel roughly. Um, then you also have the idea of... Hold on, you way- know, that's actually, that's actually a really good point. I, that had, I hadn't considered that because we're talking about this purely as a magical, crazy kind of thing. But the idea of worms in a corrupted part of the body is actually yeah that's all over the place and that's cool (laughs) and then you have um add that i take that idea and then it's the way septon barth wrote it he wrote it uh if we're trying to connect this to victorian's arm he wrote some of them were as long as my finger and one was as long as my arm so he uses hand and arm comparisons so that's Mm kind of cool so one thing i want to tell people is watch victorian's arm Watch to see if it creeps up. See if the the the, the area that's fiery. See if it moves. Because not I mean like moves inside its skin because that would be obvious. I mean like the the impacted area goes up his arm because it's only hand to elbow. So if it starts like if you see it in another scene and it's like up at his shoulder, <laughs> you're like oh it's creeping up his arm, and that so, takes us to like other fantasy diseases like grayscale and how the and then this is something you noticed that when I posted on Twitter the other day, LML about how. Victorian's hand was also healed of its infection, and that could be relevant because we have things like grayscale and other stuff. Like someone could be healed of grayscale by this means, you know, maybe. Well, so that I thought was a really interesting and almost kind of a separate idea uh, yeah. with the idea of, of using fire magic to heal weird diseases and stuff like, like grayscale. That seems potent. But, but no, if, um, if Victorian's arm starts wriggling or something like that, uh, I will definitely owe Lady Jojo Dane an apology, and we uh, we all know that she was first. Like the day after Fire and Blood came out, she posted that on Twitter. So that was her yeah. that was her idea. And if that turns out to be the case, uh, you get a sticker, Jojo. There's no <laughs> doubt that is that was all you. So I agree. There you go. Oh, she's confident. She's talking trash. Oh, <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it. Good stuff. Good stuff. And Lady Jojo, of course, thank you for being uh, one of my best mods. Always dropping the links with a quickness. You, By the way, speaking of uh, ancestry, did you guys see the story that George found out his ancestry is different than he thought? No. George uh-huh. is an Ashkenazi Jew, or Ashkenazi Jew, uh, by, by descent, and he did not know that. He is not Italian-American as he thought he was. He has way less Italian in his hair. And it's funny because this came up on one of those TV shows where he was invited on one of those, let's do your origin, you know, do your genealogy, and he okay. said what he was, and they found out he was wrong. <laughs> He's like, yeah, so his origins, like his grand, basically, and it's, it's one of those things where this must mean that his grandmother cheated on his grandfather. <gasps> Oh no! It's one of those stories. Yes, this oh, just no. came out about about George R. R. Martin. Like his grandfather must have his his grandmother probably cheated on his grandfather. <laughs> Scandal! Scandal! Yeah, right. That's so There's funny those... too because George loves yeah. that fucking shit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, a lot of those stories are popping everywhere. up now. These that's that's the side effect of these genetic tests like Ancestry.com and Twenty Three and Me. There's like a lot of these stories popping up on social media of like. Like mother, like someone bought the family DNA tests and the mom freaked out. I was like, no, we shouldn't open that. Let's not look at Let's that. Not no. 
And then it comes out that then all the kids realize, wait, mom and dad are going upstairs. And there's like four kids and they're like, wait, one of us might not be (laughs) one of us might be a half sibling. Yeah, what's so happening in like, the Martin household? Well, well, that's you interesting guys, because that's exactly what's going to happen to the Starks when Jon Snow's secret gets out. So. Yep. So, and and the chats are full of people talking about Christmas being ruined by DNA tests and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> wow! That's Christmas. I gave you a surprise. Your dad oh, is not your dad after all. <laughs> you are not the father. <laughs> what a Christmas present. Oh, wow. 